Hey friends, Ryan here. Uh, just wanted to give you a little bit of information right up front before we get into the episode. Uh, number one, uh, we recorded this episode way back in the fall of 2021. It is now the spring of 2022. So some of the stuff you're going to hear is a little outdated, so apologies for that. Uh, number two, my audio failed when we were recording this. So the audio you're hearing is the Zoom call audio, and it's a little not great. Uh, so sorry for that. Number three, this is a very long episode. Uh, we do a very long catch-up in the top end of this, and then we do a very in-depth, beat-by-beat breakdown of the movie. And then we eventually get to the deep stuff, the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes, around 50 minutes in, five zero minutes in. So if you want to go ahead and skip ahead, feel free. Uh, and finally, we do get into some deep conversation in this episode. Specifically, we get into talking about some extreme tragedy and and, and great loss, uh, specifically losing loved ones, death. It gets heavy. So if you're not in the mindset to hear something like that right now, no worries. Go ahead and skip this one. Now, on to the podcast. Carl Jung says, if we don't make the unconscious conscious, we will meet it in the external world and call it fate. One of the hardest things for me was losing that certainty, losing the idea that there was faith. And now the letting go of that has become the thing that is sort of my mantra these days. Having alarms that are false alarms that go on and off that you also can't get rid of because you genuinely need them to protect your life is exactly what it's like to live with trauma and hurt in your background. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve but a reality to experience. Yeah. So damn good. <laughs> Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cinemata Podcast. This is a podcast where we watch movies and then we break down the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes in those movies. My name is Ryan, and I am joined, as always, by my good buddy, Mike Petro. How you doing, Mike? Good, Ryan. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Mike. Welcome to the Cinemata Podcast, where we discuss spirituality and movies. Uh, <laughs> you doing, dude? I'm well. I'm well. For anybody listening, a quick disclaimer up front. A couple disclaimers for this episode. First and foremost, if you haven't listened before, uh, typically what happens is Ryan and I catch up for a minute. In the first half of the episode, we totally geek out about what we love about the movie. And in the second half of the episode, we go really, really deep with the psychological, spiritual, mythological themes of the film, as you know, Ryan. And we get into a lot of grown-up talk. And as part of that grown-up talk, we do swear a little bit. It, just a tiny bit here and there. Uh, so this is a grown-up show. The last uh, two disclaimers are that we're going to be talking about the movie Dune today, which I'm super stoked for. Neither one of us are experts on this movie, so we're going to kind of <laughs> work it out as we go. But we're also going to avoid spoilers um, for the next movie that's coming, if that makes sense. Yeah. Dune is based on Frank Herbert's novel, and the movie is the first half of it. So right. I've read the book. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try, Ryan. I am going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to not give anything away about what might be coming up in the second part yeah. of the movie. Totally. Yes. Those are my disclaimers. Awesome. Cool. Um, How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Uh, it's been, you know, uh, it's, well, uh, so uh, for the listeners out there, our last couple episodes have been released out of order. So you may have noticed, uh, I think the last one we 
or would have will be released yeah, at the, at, by the time you hear this one uh, yeah. was actually recorded like three months ago. Um, so yeah. I was re-listening to it when I was editing <laughs> and it was kind of weird to like, we were at the end of summer and we were, I was it's talking pulp about fiction uh, pacing, right? It's yeah, like it's, the plot or, is out of order. <laughs> or like uh, uh, memento. Is that the one that works backwards? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but anyway, no, it's been good, man. Um, I'm just uh, to catch some of our listeners up. Mike and I had the joy a uh, couple, was it two weeks ago? Um, it feels like a year ago, but I think it was only two weeks ago. <laughs> it does ago. feel like a year. Uh, but we went to a wedding out in State College, Pennsylvania, of our buddy Zach, uh, got married, and, uh, we had an absolute blast, man. We, we danced our asses off, uh, for several yeah, hours <laughs> and had some really good food. Yeah, we did. It. it was a nice ceremony that they did. Um, and we got to reconnect with some old friends that we hadn't seen in a couple of years. And boy, oh boy. Yeah. That was Dude, such such a joy. <laughs> so much fun. What a great time. Uh, yes. I was talking to a friend recently and, you know, because like I'm a divorced person. I've had a lot of romances in my life. And I, I was talking to a friend who's also a divorced person. And, and she was like, don't weddings make you sad? And I was like, hell no. I love weddings. <laughs> weddings are fun. I love when people find each other. I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. I've done like 50 weddings as yep. an officiant. Um, I, it, who knows, right? How many weddings we've all participated in, but they're yeah. so much fun. And this one was especially fun. <laughs> um, and you think about like our buddy who just got married, I would say ideologically, politically, very different from you and I. Yep. And yet we've always found ways to stay friends. And part of it is like talking about movies, yep. you know, sitting around uh, a campfire, uh, smoking cigars and being willing to like mock each other to, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. I love, I think the, the art of skilled disagreement is is dwindling away, and so I love when when we can find uh, friends that yeah. we cherish like that. What a blast! And then the next night, you buddy hosted a fire, yes. which let me uh, invite a couple friends to stop by and see a couple people all in one shot. Yeah, um, which was also yes. a blast. It was super fun. It was great. That was a. That was a special night to just uh, feel those old vibes again and just sit around a campfire and shoot the shit for a few hours. And I love it, man. I love, yeah. I love, love campfires. I love you. I love uh, getting together with our friends. And uh, yeah, so that was a, a fantastic weekend. Did you have a, a decent trip home and getting? I'll tell you what, I in? did <laughs> so much driving in circles during that trip uh, to see everyone. I can't, I cannot imagine how many hours I spent in the car. I think I, I spent. Day after the wedding, it was what three or four down, then forty five out, then forty five back. Then an, I've just an yeah. insane amount. So worth it. So yeah, worth it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think the the um, I had some some you know we won't get into this, but some crazy shit on the way. I had a problem here before I left where my car alarm kept going off, <laughs> and I just couldn't. Every time I opened my car, the alarm went off, and there was nothing oh I could God. do to fix it. Wow. And then um, my rental car, when I landed in Pennsylvania, one of the sensors was wrong. So it kept thinking the door was opening when it wasn't. Oh my gosh. So it kept sounding an alarm and locking and unlocking the doors. Oh my goodness. And it did this like rapidly for four hours on my drive home from State oh my College. God. Uh, the night that I spent in the hotel, I was going to camp with all of you. And then one of my friends was like, hey, you're a grown ass man. Like, spend the night in a hotel, get a good night's sleep. You can afford it. And um, and then the smoke detector started chirping at 4 a.m. Um, and the most incompetent desk clerk of all time was like, yeah, I don't really know what to do about it. 
And he goes, I'd put you in a new room, but that would mean my, my housekeeping staff has to clean two rooms. So I was like, I, I can't, I actually, this conversation is so unbelievably stupid. I can't yeah. even deal. And I just yeah. went back to my room and went to sleep. Oh so he kind of won that round. Um, yeah. So weird stuff, but I yeah. think I, you know, I kind of like sat with it to figure out what it meant and, and it was amusing. Uh, yeah, man. And I also, uh, I got to go to Column Seal, which is one yes, of my favorite sacred that. places. I ended up there by accident. Those of yeah. you who might know this, those of you who listen are probably a lot of our friends, you know, Column Seal, but it's a, it's a random park near the Delaware Water Gap, Pennsylvania. Um, there where this guy just brought in a bunch of gigantic sacred stones that are taller than me from around the world mm-hmm. and created this like massive stone circle. And then there's these crazy stone gates and chapels and and there's a labyrinth it's just the wildest place to to walk around and think and pray yeah there's monoliths all over there's one there's like a gateway that sort of looks like like a stonehenge uh yeah. type um thing and then he's just got these giant i mean they gotta be 20 30 ton stones that he <laughs> just placed all imagine around yeah how he got them there they must i mean cranes and shipping and all this blows my mind but I, I did want to say too, for me, when we were going out to that wedding, it was the peak um, autumn, like the leaves on the trees, that ride oh out to State College. Holy crap, was it gorgeous. Because um, it was all back roads for us. I don't know which way you yeah. took to get out there, but we took all these crazy back roads and we were towing the camper. And so it took yeah. us forever to get out there. But man, oh man, was it a gorgeous, gorgeous trip out there. What a good weekend. That was such a... Dude, such it's such ride. a blast. And I, do you know what that was crazy is I left New Mexico and I got to be immersed in fall colors on the yes. East Coast <laughs> and it was misty and rainy, which normally I would think is gross, but it just gave it such a cool romantic feel. And it yeah. reminded me of everything I love about autumn in PA. Yep. Um, and then I pieced out and I came home. And then what was wild <laughs> is I, the, I don't remember this happening last year, but I came back to New Mexico and all the cottonwoods have turned this amazing golden color. Oh, wow. So like our fall is bright gold everywhere and wow. the light and all of it. It's just absolutely extraordinary. I'm so, uh, awesome. yeah, it's, it's a great autumn out <laughs> here right now too. So very, very cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. We're, we're now that, that beautiful section of PA fall, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the foliage is, uh, yep. it's very short lived. And so now we're already very deep into the, the, right you know, just the brown <laughs> nothingness of, yeah. of winter up here. That's, that's the problem <laughs> is that what immediately follows <laughs> the fall, it, it's like the height of beauty. <laughs> immediately followed by the most drab and depressing seasonal moment that you go through. And also, um, also uh, coincides specifically with the changing of the clocks. Right. So you get less my, light. Dude, my whole, like I, I'm starting to get the seasonal affective disorder. I'm starting, yeah. you know, like everything is flipped upside down the past oh couple my God. weeks. Um, it's been, yeah. Well, so we, so it's dark when I get out of the office and by the office, I mean my home office cause we're still working remotely. So I've been like getting up early. I've been going for runs in the morning. I've been taking walks at lunch because I need to see the sun. Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't do perpetual darkness. I just yeah. wouldn't make it. Even yeah. as a night person, it's still like, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it gets me all wonky. Yeah. It's definitely tricky. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, Laura and I are, we're going out to see her family for Thanksgiving out in, uh, Western PA. 
And uh, so right now, sort of super last minute, we're trying to plan, like, she's got a couple days off before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So we're trying to plan a trip out to, like, Pittsburgh and possibly, like, Cleveland, uh, maybe Lake Erie um, with the camper and to try to get a couple days of quick camping in before Thanksgiving. So right on. One one last quick adventure here at the end of the yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to get up to Chaco Canyon one more time um yeah. before before it's just too cold. Yeah. And so that's that's uh yeah, things I'm and there's a few like it's it's weird. There's a few hikes out here that I really love to get way up in the mountains and they're it's too hot to do during the mm-hmm. summer, right? Okay. People die because yeah, it's so yeah. hot. And once you get the first snow, which happens early in the mountains, uh, it's too dangerous. Wow. So, like, I'm right in the sweet spot where there's okay. three or four super long hikes, and yeah. I'm trying to get them in before the first snowfall. Yeah. So, uh, so expect awesome. pictures on my yeah. Instagram uh, awesome, in the man. next couple in the next couple weeks, awesome. which I'm I'm pretty stoked for. So, um, <laughs> so two things. I, I had this thing recently where I said we should start with always asking, like, start the episode by asking what our favorite scene is. And I totally whiffed it and forgot to do it this time around. <laughs> uh, so we can hang on that. But I know also uh, normally we talk about, are you watching anything cool right now? Yeah. So I so we haven't found we, we're we're sort of in a weird spot right now where we don't have a good like series that we're watching. We're working our mm-hmm. way through some older stuff. I'm I turned Laura on to Justified, so we're, I'm rewatching oh that with her. God. Um. I and that's a fun it. ride, but it is a little bit, I remembered it being a little bit more, and maybe it's just, it takes like a, a the first season to kind of ramp up. Oh yeah. Um, but I remember it being a little bit more intense than it, the first season was. So yep. it was a little more episodic. A little, yep. The first season is almost yep. like little vignettes rather than the big storytelling. Um, and is that yeah, changed two, in season two? Two reasons for that. They were one. They're trying to find their uh, their rhythm, and the other thing is Boyd Crowder's the big bad in the first season, yeah. and he basically um, was supposed to come in, be in a bunch of episodes, and die. Okay. But he was so good, and he tested so well with the audience that they decided to make him a series regular. Okay. So what happens is, starting in the second season, first episode, he is just a main character. Right. And he and Ava, his girlfriend, have their own through line that goes all the way through to the last episode of the series. Okay. And so what happens is it creates a continuous arc. Like okay. actually their characters, even when Raylan's doing episodic stuff and he has a different like bad guy of the week, right. you still see their ongoing story. So it okay. one, it amps it up because he's amazing. Like he's, that guy I was I rooted for him during the show, I'm just gonna be honest. Like he's incredible. And I do remember phenomenal. loving the show when I watched it the first time through. Yeah. But rewatching, I was like, wait a minute, this I don't it, I remember this being way more intense than it is yeah. right now. So And that's because the first season is good, but if you're holding it against two through five or whatever it was, it's just not as good because okay. you know what it becomes. Okay. So hang in, man. Second yeah. second season, it locks into gear. And okay, even the good. last episode of the first season, like it's it we gets just did really that. Yeah. No, oh that god. that episode's great. And I think we Oh my god. We may have started and then I think we both fell asleep the the, the first season, yeah. the first episode of the second season. But yeah, I'm 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 excited to get her on that. Well but and I, I love say, Sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. No, go no, ahead. no. I said I love the bad guy, and I love the um the mom who's the like. Yes. Has she shown up yet? Yeah, she, she is so good. She's like the master drug dealer yes. family. Oh my god, she's so good. And then the little girl who's in her, her sort of her character. They're so good. They're both. I think such they show up in the actors. first episode of the second season because I think we just saw them, and then it 
flashed in my brain. I'm like, oh, and I sort yeah. of remembered. I was like, wait a minute, she's like badass, and that girl's fucking wild too. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm, I'm did you, did, to- I'm trying to remember that first. Did this heavy apple pie scene where she's like yes. apple pie? Oh my god, that, that, that the apple pie moonshine, up. dude. That is like, dude, crazy scene. Anyway, that is such um, a well written season. Yeah. Um, the other thing I did want to mention, you recommended it. Uh, we watched Shang Chi, and that movie was so good. That it's was bonkers such- good. Oh, it's, it's dude. a blast. In contrary to what I talked about last time with the Marvel movies, like you said, yeah. this is kind of its own thing. Yep. Very um, singular, but it does. There are a couple references to the MCU. Sure. But, Just to remind you that it's in that universe. But you you do not need to know anything about Marvel to get no. into this. And if you like kung fu movies, which man, back in the day, I used to go to Blockbuster and get like yeah. twenty DVDs for like ten bucks, you know, of like yep. the old Jackie Chan and old like overdubbed yeah. kung fu stuff. Man, oh, I love that stuff. And they, the choreography in that was so good. The, the fight that's, scenes. That, the first big fight scene on the bus, my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Phenomenal. And the characters I'm gonna, I'm gonna were all so good. It. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. We watched um, one night, one movie that I will not recommend. We, we rented Old, the mm. new M. Night Shyamalan movie. Nope, not interested. Oh, my God. M. Night Shyamalan has become a victim of M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> <laughs> the the quote unquote twist at the end, yeah, was was not a twist. It was it was just a reveal. It wasn't. A, I don't know. He's a victim of his own. Yeah, making. Um, yeah. There's I no comment. I I don't <laughs> I don't I don't really. I kind of lost faith or or maybe taste preference yeah, yeah. for his stuff a while ago. And I saw that preview and I was like, me not interested. Yeah. Um. I did. Uh, I've been watching the live action Cowboy Bebop, which is a lot of fun. Okay. Because I love that, even if you're not an anime, they say that's like the anime for people who don't like anime. It's a okay. fun, it's like a, almost like that. Firefly. It's like a found okay. family story. Gotcha. Um, and if you, and it's not getting great reviews because it's so similar to the anime that you can't help but compare them. Okay. And there's just like fight choreography and certain things you can just do animated better than you can live action. Right. Yep. But I think if you've never seen it or you can resist the comparison, I actually think it's great. And I think okay. it's worth giving I'll check a it out. Also... A friend of mine just told me about a show that I've not watched called The Mayor of East Town. Yep, we watched that when that came out. Good. Was show, it man. good? I know it's set in Pennsylvania. She's like, yeah. "You're going to love this because there's so many like Pennsylvania yeah. Easter eggs." Yeah. And I was like, "Okay, is it good?" Yeah, it's a great. I mean, it's it's a it's a detective show, you know what I mean? Okay. But but it's in that genre, I I think it's very good. It's very reminiscent in my mind of an older show that I Laura and I just rewatched called um the killing um uh, i've heard the, of the killing the killing is we rewatched that because i was like oh that, when we were watching mayor of east town i was like this reminds me of the killing so we watched that but the killing is so dark and so depressing there is okay it, it is totally a tragedy but mayor of east town was great did you see have you seen the uh saturday night live sketch that they did on mayor of east town no because i didn't see the show so i wouldn't have known okay this after sketch. you start watching mayor of east town yeah. You got to watch the sketch okay. from Saturday Night Live because they totally take, because in Mayor of Easttown, they're doing like the Philly, the Delco accent, yeah. the yeah. hoagies and going down to the water. Right. And, that's um, sort of what a friend who went to college in Philadelphia recommended it to me because she's yeah. like, you're going to love the, yeah, that, yeah. that vibe. And then in the SNL sketch, they take that to like the nth degree. <laughs> it's pretty I funny. love when people from New York City make fun of Philadelphia. There's just something yeah. about it that, especially for us, right? Because we basically lived about an hour and 15 from each of them. Yep. So you're sort of in between the two cultures. And at this point, 
I know you've sort of moved out of the valley, but the area that Ryan and I are from, I think, has basically just become a giant suburb of both cities. Because if you're yeah. in, in the Lehigh Valley proper, so many people commute into both cities for work. And it's almost, you almost have, there is like a sort of a dichotomy there of people that favor one or the other, right? right. That like are Absolutely. either on team New York or team <laughs> right. Philly, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, and I lived in New York City for a couple of years, so clearly I'm team New York uh, yeah. all the way. Uh, but I love, but New, it York. Does, I love yeah. New York, but I love the grittiness of Philly and I'm, I'm, I tend to favor Philly. It is, there's a lot more grit and I think Batman's <laughs> afraid of some parts of Philadelphia. <laughs> Philly definitely has some grit. Oh my God. All right, oh, dude. Man. So, uh, what did you think of the movie Dune? I really, really like this, man. This was a yeah. really, uh, um, as far as the storytelling, great yeah. storytelling. Um, the stories, uh, it's just, um, it's compelling the way they show it. It, it draws you in pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, you're in that world. It doesn't take much effort to, to, to get into yeah. it. I would, the one, um, criticism that I've heard was that the understanding who's who and the different families yeah. and stuff in the beginning is a little, um, hard, but I think they yeah. actually did a pretty good job of like, didn't take too much effort to understand who sure. was who. Sure. Well, and it's because I've had, I've heard a few people, uh, personal and professional, say it's like Game of Thrones in space, and it it without the sex, and then I'm like, well, that's not Game of Thrones, then. but but it um it is because you have all these different houses that are sort of moving against each other, yeah, and they do a really good job of focusing this on what you need to know to watch the first half of this movie, right, right, yeah, but or excuse me, the first half of the story, which is Dune Part One, right, um, but yeah. A couple friends before we went to see it, I was like, let me just give you a primer on everyone you're going to meet in the first 15 minutes just to help you get ready to track it. There was one or two spots where in the first 15, 20 minutes, Laura and I had to pause the movie and help each other, like catch each other up on what we thought was going on. But it wasn't like, had we not known those particulars, I don't think it would have mattered so much, you know, uh, because the story eventually gets you where you need to be you know right but but visually man holy shit did they do a good job with this it is it is so gorgeous the the scenery um i was watching a couple behind the scenes things and how they were mixing like old school model making um yeah um and like special effects in this are top notch um i that some of the scenery it put me in the same sort of mentality the same um sort of awe-inspiring uh, uh, feeling that I felt when I saw, like, the first um, Lord of the Rings movie. Yes. Like, just the grandiose yep. nature of what's happening. Even some yep. of the wide shots of, like, all the, the military folks. It reminded yeah. me of some of the battles in Lord of the Rings. Like, just that yeah. massive... It, it There's something about when you feel a very, very big world yeah. that, like, makes you feel so small. And yep. like you're just this like little fly yep. on the wall participating in this yep. this grandiose thing. It's so beautiful, so beautiful. It's it's. I was thinking about because because uh, you know sometimes we talk about our favorite scene, and I was thinking about it this morning, and I was like, I can't pick one because it's it, really because hard. in a way the whole movie feels like one long scene. It I don't does. know. There's something about the way that he captures, and he's such a good director, right? He's done. He did the Blade Runner sequel. Mm-hmm. He did yeah. Arrival, which is one of my all time favorite oh, science I didn't fiction movies. That. Okay. Yeah, which is like slow and brooding the whole time, yeah. right? There's but not great. a lick of action in that movie, but it's still like, I feel like yeah. grips you so much. He's done a lot of really cool stuff, but he just has such a good skill for like the visual tapestry that he creates and the sound, even the the soundtrack 
one, it's not a soundtrack that I want to sit around and listen to. Two, it's absolutely gripping and just keeps you in this movie. It, this soundtrack isn't good music laid on top of a good movie. It is this, the feel of this film. It is so damn good. So I forgot to send it to you, but yesterday when I was working, there's a, there's a podcast called Sound, uh, Sound, Song Exploder. Have you heard mm-hmm. of this podcast? I have not. Um, and and uh, it's a great podcast if you're into music. Um, and what they do in that podcast is they talk to an artist, and usually the artist comes in, they, they talk about one song, and the yeah. artist sort of breaks the song down, how they wrote it, how they recorded it, what they were going through, what they were feeling. And a lot of the times they'll, they'll bring in like demos and stuff and they'll let you listen yeah. to like, um, so they had Hans Zimmer on talking about this soundtrack and he brought in what he calls his sketchbook for the, I think the song is called Paul's arrival or something like that. It's like the mm. beginning, the, the, the sound, the, the music in the very beginning of the movie or whatever. And he breaks down, he was talking about, how it was literally a conversation between him and the director and they'd worked together because I think he did Blade Runner too, um, the soundtrack for Blade Runner. And Mm -hmm. he was talking about how he knew the pacing of the way this director works and he knew that it needed to be slow and methodical. And, and he talks, he breaks down how he built this song and you're totally right. It's, it's like an on purpose, slow, methodical, brooding, like very intense. Like when you listen to the music on its own, it is like a, it's like you said, I, I'm not, it's not something I probably would listen to on my record player. Yeah. But it is, it gives you a feel like, oh, it's masterful. It's (laughs) masterfully done. It's a work of art. I mean, this movie is a work of art. It's a big budget art film, really. Um, and it, and the crazy thing is it's a work of art. It's a big budget art film, but it also like, there are scenes that take me back to old, old, old school Hollywood epic blockbusters, like the Ben Hurs and the, those, those old movies where you actually would have like those scenes of armies that were not CGI, Right. right? Like that big, gigantic intensity. Um, because, uh, you know, just, you know, full disclosure, like uh, this movie came out in theaters and streaming at the same time. Mm -hmm. I have access to it through HBO. I've watched it once on HBO, but I have paid 20 bucks a clip (laughs) to see it twice in IMAX, which is how I saw it first. And I'm really glad I did. Um, it holds up on a television and it is unbelievable on a giant screen because you are so immersed in it. And he's not afraid of doing these gigantic shots that show you scale. So you're, so what you said about feeling small when someone creates such a big world. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many shots where he intentionally shows something massive, right? Like there's a massive shot of space. Then there's a massive Starcraft in that field. And then there are these tiny, tiny, tiny little specks that are ships coming out of it, going down to the planet. And then when it lands on the planet, the ship is massive and there's a tiny little person (laughs) walking out of it. He really, really, really does it. And it's phenomenal. There was one little behind the scenes thing that I saw. So there's the one shot and I, I don't remember the exact shot, but there's like an over, it's like, um, almost like you're looking down from, from the sky down to when I think it's when the family is walking out of the spaceship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that shot, what they did was they created a model of the spaceship. Yeah. And all the little figures that yep. were standing, all the army. And then they raised it up, like, I think it was 40 or 50 feet in the air. Yeah. And then they lined the camera up, and then the live actors were down on the ground. 
and there was a hole in the center of this 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 model that That's lined. Insane. So it was a, it was a live shot. It was not CG. It was a live shot that they That's... used a model in the foreground and shot through it. Which I love movies that are willing to do that extra yeah. effort to do practical effects. Yep. That feel so much more real than the CG. And obviously there's a shit ton of CG in this movie, but they also do that really, really well. They really do. It's funny because this, uh, this book's been around for a while and they for years have said that it was an unfilmable movie. Mm. They said there's just no way you could get the scale on screen. And yeah. so famously, I, there was a director, I don't know what his name is. It might have been Jared Dowski or something, but there's a documentary about all this money that they threw at this one director to try to film Dune. Right. And they, uh, and they prepped and prepped and prepped and like had a production going at one point and it just never got anywhere Ugh. because it's so hard and they realized it was going to be so over budget. Um, then there was a version in the 80s, yep. which was maybe David Lynch, maybe? Yep. Yep. Um, and that movie is bonkers. It's like yeah. a psychedelic trip. I have friends who love it. I think it's terrible. Okay. But I think it's terribly <laughs> fun to watch. Um, and that movie apparently was like hours long, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, five hours or something. And then they, the studio took it and cut it to shreds right. to get it down to a viewable length. And the director is like, take my name off it because yep. it's, it's a Frankenstein. Uh- and then later, people have at different times gone back and attempted to re-edit some of that footage in. So oh. there are multiple versions that are like two hours, three hours, five oh, hours wow. that exist out there, none of which the director has condoned as like how and he would have told the story. In that version, is that a telling of the whole first book or is it like mm-hmm. this one where it's oh, okay? No, that that movie is the and that's why it's a mess is because there's just too much story to fit into one right. movie. Okay. Right. You could have, well, I think, I think the sci-fi channel did a version of this as well. And what they did was they made it a mini series. So they gave okay. themselves a lot more space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, this is the first time someone I think has really, really nailed the feel. Yeah. And I think it's a really, really good choice to split the story in two. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, yeah. when we, when we do our recap, but it's, it's big, dude. It's, yeah. it's, Big. Well, just for anybody that's listening, uh, do you want to do a quick synopsis of what the movie oh of the story? A quick synopsis of Dune. Sure. Um, and you can go in and edit this if I can't, because it's just so much happens. So basically, um, if you haven't seen Dune, here's the gist of it. Way off in the future, the universe has several ruling houses, sort of like Game of Thrones. And there's an emperor above those ruling houses, but there's rivalries and there's plots and there's a bunch of shit going on. In this setting, there is one planet, which is a desert planet called Arrakis. And it's basically Tatooine from Star Wars. (laughs) And on that planet, there is a rare resource called the Spice and one of my favorite memes was like in a shocking twist in the movie Dune, <laughs> men fight over a planet filled with cocaine. <laughs> um, the spice is one, a drug that has psychedelic effects and, can, and in certain doses can cause people to have psychedelic trips yep. Two, a drug 
that causes people to live longer. You live like twice as long as an ordinary person. Three, a drug that in certain doses just enhances your mental performance. Four, a drug that the spacing guild has used to take themselves to a place that they can actually maneuver interstellar travel, right? That they can, that they need the spice to be able to do the computations to make interstellar travel possible. Right. So if the spice goes away, lots of problems for lots of people. They're super dependent on it, but it only comes from this one desert planet in the middle of nowhere. And whoever runs that planet basically has a monopoly on the most valuable resource in the universe. And so at the opening of the film, there is house, I think Harkonnen, they're the bad guys and they have been running Arrakis for a long time and they've been squeezing it for every, every drop, every bit of spice, every bit of money, every bit of financial gain. And they have had their boot on the throat of the local population who are called the Fremen, who are these sort of random desert tribes. Nobody knows a lot about them, but they, they mistreat them. They abuse them. And then the Fremen from time to time, you know, nip at their heels and mm-hmm. blow up their shit when they can. Yep. So this is where we're at. The Emperor, who does not appear in the movie, much yep. like the original Star Wars, <laughs> sets things in motion by ordering the Harkonnens off the planet. Seemingly because he's pissed off at them because they were becoming so powerful financially that they're a threat to him. Yep. And instead, he orders a different house, and that is House Atreides, to take over the operations of Dune. Yep. That's where we start is with House Atreides. They are the heroes. They are the main characters. They are the family, sort of like the Starks in the, in the first season of Game of Thrones that you start out rooting for. Mm-hmm. But what becomes clear in the movie and in the novel is that all of this is a trap. Right. Because the Emperor is threatened by both of these houses. And so what he's trying to do is to spark a conflict between the two of them. Because whoever loses, he wins. Because the Harkonnens are becoming so financially powerful, they threaten him. And Duke Atreides is such a good dude that he has so much influence right. in the Empire that he's also a threat to the Emperor. So the whole thing, this shift of operation is a massive, massive trap. And it seems like what it's doing is it's putting the Atreides in a very, very vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. So that's the backdrop that you have to pick up on in like the first few minutes of the film. Right. <laughs> and we very quickly find our main characters. And that is the family of the ruling family of Atreides and especially the son, Paul, who's the son of the Duke, who's going to inherit his father's position at some point. And he is a very, very special character. He is mm-hmm. the son of Duke Atreides who's the most influential and the most virtuous leader in the entire universe. His mother, Jessica, I think, is a Benny Jesserit concubine. This is so much information. And what the <laughs> Benny Jesserits are is they are a secret order of women who are they're sort of some people have said actually the inspiration in a very strange way for the Jedi in Star Wars. Okay. But they have trained their minds and their bodies to be peak performance. Um, you, you see a little bit of it in this in the movie. They're like vicious fighters, crazy kung fu stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a, a whole philosophy called the Weirding Way. But also for 
millennia, uh, they have been behind the scenes influencing politics. And for centuries, they've been sort of influencing how these houses interact with each other in theory for the good. Right. right. Trying to bring the universe to the best place. And so they do kind of send their agents to be concubines and wives to particular rulers to influence them. And so, um, but they are an order of women. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you find out very early in the film is that Paul's mother, Jessica, has been training him in the way of the Bene Gesserit, and she was not supposed to. Right. She was also not supposed to have a son. In this world, these Bene Gesserits can control um, whether they have uh, sons or daughters, and she was supposed to bear Duke Leto Atreides a daughter, a daughter. and instead she chose to bear him a son. So much information, dear listener. I'm so sorry to hit you with all of this. Maybe you've seen the movie, maybe you haven't. The reason that she chose to bear him a son is because for generations, the, um, the, uh, man, I'm going to get confused with all these different names and words, right? The (laughs) Bene Gesserit have been trying to breed into existence, um, a, a sort of almost messiah figure, like someone who would have the ability to marshal all the skills and all the psychic abilities that they have channeled as an order and would actually be able to see through time right? amongst everything else. And then he would sort of be this proto-Messiah figure who would guide the universe into a new era of peace and harmony, but also who they would have some kind of control over. And so in the, in the opening scene of the movie, you see um, a delegate from the emperor arrive at House Atreides, they have this big ritual to symbolize that the Atreides are now going to go to take over the planet Arrakis, otherwise known as Dune. And then the head of the Bene Gesserit order comes to meet with Jessica and comes to meet with Paul mm-hmm. and basically tears Jessica a new one because she says, "You did you think in your arrogance that you could make this happen, that right. you could give birth to, I don't remember what it is. It's the kids at Satarak or there's a, I think it's the kids at Satarak. Um, this Messiah who right. we think is basically a generation or two away. Okay. And you've, you've sort of tried to jump the gun here and then things get rolling. And when yeah. things get rolling, what happens is Paul knowing none of this yet is sent for, and he has to endure a psychological and physical test put on him by the Reverend mother. Who's the head of the secret order. That's also not so secret. <laughs> of the Benny Gesserits. And um, we don't have time. It's very, very, very dramatic scene. Very, very cool. Yeah. She is testing him to see how much mental control he has over himself. Right. And if he passes this test, he lives. And if he fails the test, she's going to kill him. Right. Because he has too much potential power to live if he can't master his right. own emotions in a test where he's being given a lot of physical pain. And so I have one critique of this movie and that is in this scene, which I love, they mutter through my favorite line of the film. And it's when he's being tested, his mom is like sort of freaking out and she's muttering this mantra. Mm. And you see, if you pay attention that his lips are moving and he's saying it with her in his head Oh, okay. And it's my favorite line of the story. And this is it. This is a Benny Gesserit mantra that they train themselves. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. 
I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Mm. I fucking <laughs> love that line so much. And they and the scene is so intense that you kind of don't get the fullness right. of it unless you watch it with the subtitles on. Yeah. But man, it's <laughs> so rad. And they call yeah. back to that a couple times right. when Jessica or Jessica or Paul need to calm themselves. Right. Um so that scene's really good. And so one of the things that that also becomes clear is he passes the test. He becomes aware of this plot and this plan and this potential destiny. And he, he he's already made it clear, like he's not thrilled about the weight of burden put on his shoulders to inherit the role of Duke at some point. Right. And then yeah. he finds out that he might actually be expected to be yes. some kind of a massive <laughs> Messiah. And that's a lot to throw on the shoulders of, I think he's pay- playing like a 16 year old kid. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a lot. So yeah. he's, he's reconciling what that means. Um, and then they all pack up and they go to Arrakis. Yep. And a lot of shit happens. There's some just phenomenal cinematography. You see them leave this beautiful, lush, yeah. green water planet and land on this harsh, dry yes. desert uh, where it's literally just nothing but sand as far as you can see. And then it gets into like their shenanigans. Um, they're settling into the role of taking it over. And I'm not going to recap all the details because yeah. it's a long, slow, but beautiful film to watch. And I'm not going to tell you all of it. There's, you get the hint that something's not right. Uh, there's an assassination attempt made against Paul. You get the sense that, that, um, you know, when the Harkonnens left, or excuse me, when the, yes, yes, when the Harkonnens left, they sabotaged all the gear and all the equipment so that the Atreides would be walking into the the worst situation possible. And the Emperor has intense demands of them in this spice production, and there's no way they can meet them because of the fact that their stuff has all been sabotaged. And in the midst of this, when they see the Fremen, when they see the local people, when they see Paul and his mom, they start chanting, and they start um saying things that they don't understand. And what you realize is that these people have been expecting a Messiah and a mother and son that would arrive to liberate them. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how clear this was when you watched it, but what's very, very clear in the novel and expected to be clear in the movie is that the Bene Gesserit have been there for years seeding that prophecy Okay. And they have actually seeded that prophecy on planets all over the universe. Oh. And what they've done is they've actually created prophecies to create environments that are hospitable to one of their agents if their agents needs to get shit done. Wow. So they've actually, and they say that to her at one point. She says, you know, we've done what we can to prepare the way for you so you can survive this trap. And so what they've done is they've had like weirding women who show up to kind of influence as sort of shamans to influence the Fremen and yeah. they have engineered this prophecy. Wow. Which they can now capitalize on. Um, which I suspect we'll talk about in the second half of the episode. Yeah. That's, I did not, I think I yeah. picked up on it a little bit, but the implications of that are, wow. That's, that's the prophecy intense. has been intentionally engineered yes. over <laughs> centuries, which is wild because yeah. they've, they've, 
been creating the prophecy. They've also been trying to breed someone who will sort of have these intense psychic powers. Like it's a long game. The Benny Gesserit yeah. have been playing chess for a long, long time. Yeah. So predictably, everything goes to shit. Yep. There's an intense betrayal. What they expect the Harkonnens to make a move on them. They don't expect it to be so soon because what happens is the Atreides are badass. They're badass sword fighters. Yep. And the, um, they basically just, you know, you have these phenomenal characters. You have, um, what's his name? Ivan Drogo, uh, um, uh, slash Aquaman slash Jason Momoa, oh, Jason Momoa, who plays Duncan, who's who's one of the sword masters. You have Gurney Halleck, who like leads their military, paid by Josh Brolin, who's just amazing in this movie yeah. Yeah, as great. just this like stoic badass. And and their military is really intense. But the Emperor has the Sardaukar, who are these special, super elite mm-hmm. assassin warriors. They're like yep. Spartans, and he's so committed to this betrayal that he was, what he does is he secretly gives the Harkonnens like, I don't know, three legions or something of his super elite warriors. So they very quickly sneak attack drop and just blow the shit out of the Atreides. A lot of people die and they very quickly take over the planet. And again, if you have seen the movie, you don't need the recap. If you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to ruin it all for you. Do see it because it's phenomenal. Um, but it goes poorly. Yep. And with a few phenomenal action set pieces in there and some really, again, this is not an action movie, but some really wild fight yeah. choreography. Yeah. Um, only Paul and his mother escape and they escape right. into the desert. And so just a little bit more context in this world um there are laser beams that can like cut through anything but someone developed a shield technology to stop them and what happens is if you hit one of these shields with one of these lasers it will create a nuclear level explosion you probably you might not have picked up on that in the movie so yeah. what's happened is no one uses energy weapons anymore for close quarter combat it's this mutual assured destruction thing so what they've done is they've created these shields and you can wear them on your body and only a slow moving thing can penetrate them. So in this future of super advanced technology, it's kicked everyone back to sword fighting. And it is so cool. I love they that do that such a good job with the shields. The sword fighting is amazing. Um, it's the scenes are just so, so good. Yep. And so um, th- that's why I said there's some really, really great fight choreography. There's a lot of like plot and betrayal. That's really, really cool. And then um, Paul and his mom end up barely escaping and you get to see her use some of her, like the scene where she uses the voice was really, yeah, really cool. Yeah. Some of her like Benny Gesserit powers kind of terrifying. Um, and terrifying. They've, they've cultivated this ability. It's like a psychic ability where they can use what they call the voice where you can command someone in the right pitch and they have to obey you. And it, there's a, there's a rad escape scene using that. Also, dude, the, the thopters, those sort of like, they yeah. look like an Apache <laughs> helicopter cross with a dragonfly yep. are so friggin' cool. They yeah. look yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, I love everything Special about effects it. effects on that are, insane there's a there's a Dude. youtube channel i love to watch which is like vfx artists that sort of yeah. talk about vfx and they talk about that specific thing about yeah. how hard it is to pull off the motion blur that they did with the wings and yeah. that thing and how it looks real it looks like 
it's actually moving those wings that fast. And it, they were talking about the computational power to create that scene, like how complicated it was to, oh to my God. be able to pull that off. Every time those things are on screen, and there's two or three big moments where they're on screen, every time they're on screen, they just look so cool. Yeah. Um, I love them so much. So Paul and his mom flee, and they end up uh, catching up with the Fremen. And the Fremen are the desert people. There's a few scenes of the Fremen, like, popping out of the sand behind yeah. people to ambush them that are so amazing. Yeah. Um, and Paul and his mom escape into the desert. And what happens at a few moments is the desert is filled with spice, man. So Paul starts breathing in the spice and it unlocks shit in his mind. And he right. basically starts to go super Saiyan. It starts to unlock all these latent psychic abilities. Yep. And he's already at the beginning of the movie been having dreams and he keeps having dreams of Arrakis. He's having dreams that are pericognitive where he's like maybe seeing the future. He keeps seeing this woman over and over again, who of course is Zendaya, who's in like 11 minutes of the film, but is literally everywhere because he's having visions of her constantly. Right. right. And, and and he keeps seeing these sort of visions of the future, but they're contradicting each other, right? In some of them, he's finding allies. In some of them, those allies are killing him. In some of them, he's, he, there's, there's one of my favorite parts of it. Um, he ends up having a conversation with this person who in his vision becomes a friend and mentor to him. And then the last major act of the film, he ends up actually having to kill that person. Right. So that that moment of, mentorship and friendship never actually takes place. Although that character gives my other favorite line of the film, which is the mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. Yeah. So damn good. And then he like, and he's having these visions where they're sort of talking to him. It's very Taoist about going with going with the elements and like they're they're indoctrinating him into the fremen philosophy before he's even met them right um and so the film ends uh with some with you know a very very small action set piece compared to the big epic shit that happens in the middle but mm -hmm. the film ends on a massive cliffhanger with paul and his mom going away into the desert with this yep. tribe yep. um which is good there's a great scene where like the the leader of that tribe finds them and he's like, all right, well, he's young enough that we can train him, but she's too old. Let's kill her. Yeah. And uh, and he's like, hey, sorry, you know, in, in the in the desert, water is such a rare commodity. Yep. It is so precious. It's more precious than spice. It keeps you alive. And so he's like, sorry, your water is more valuable to us than you are. So we're going to and he goes to kill her and she absolutely kicks his ass because she's yeah. a Benny Gesserit right. and he's laying there on the ground. And he goes, why didn't you tell me you were a weirding woman and a fighter? And that's <laughs> that thing you'll learn more about in the next, um, okay. in the next part is the weirding way, okay. which is sort of like Taoism and Kung Fu. Okay. It's some, it's some fun shit and, okay. and a full fighting style that his mom is a master of, okay. uh, that we'll learn a little bit more about, but that's where it is. And so I kind of want to ask you a question before we get into the deep stuff. Yeah. I knew that this was only the first half of the book mm -hmm. and I know the book. So I knew that the movie was going to just stop at a right. certain point. Yep. And I thought that it would, what would happen is, the Atreides would get wiped out and the movie would stop. I didn't expect it to go one beat further and stop with them wandering off mm -hmm. into the desert, yeah. which I loved. Like yeah. as he basically, his mom's like, you got to get him off planet. And he goes, no, our way is, is with them 
in the desert. And I was like, oh yeah, this is we're going to end it. This is perfect. But for you not knowing any of that, was that ending jarring for you? It was not my favorite. Um, okay. I wondered I about say, that. I would, I'm, I'm the type of person that I like, even when I know that, cause I knew that there was going to be, uh, you know, at least two movies. Um, I'm a person that even when I know there's a sequel coming, I prefer it to end on a strong beat that feels yeah. like a culmination of, of the episode we just watched, you know? Um, yeah. and so, so, the way it ended felt a little bit, it left me, I, obviously it was on purpose and they want, yep. they, they leave you wanting more, Yep. but that wanting more when you know that it's at least another, what, two years away, like Probably I think they two said or they're three not going to yeah. start filming until 2022, I think. Well, because the sequel hadn't been greenlit when the movie right. released. It has since been greenlit, but it right. hadn't. They were like, we're going to see how this goes. Yeah. Fortunately for all of us, it went well. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as far as like artistically, it's very beautiful. I do like I, that. That closing scene is a very grand shot uh, with the yeah. worm and everything. Um, I, I felt a little bit let down. I would have, ex- yeah. I would have preferred a bigger ending, Yeah, but that's like, uh, in my mind, it's a minor grievance for a very, like as a whole, the whole thing was such a beautiful ride that yeah. it was, it wasn't the end of the world to have an ending that way in my yeah. opinion. Well, it's funny because I've heard some people compare it to the Lord of the Rings movies where if you read the Lord of the Rings books, they do just stop. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and one of the things I think they did really well with the films is they made it so that each one leaves you hanging for the next, but there's still a beginning, a middle and an ending. Yeah. There's still a sense of resolution that your movie has come to a close. And I remember going to see the fellowship of the ring and yeah. it like ends with like Sam and Frodo paddling away. And I remember yeah. there was someone in the movie theater who's like, what the hell? And, you know, because people <laughs> didn't know it was the first part of the trilogy. Right, right. But I still think there's more of a sense of closure. This yes. one, again, I loved it. Yeah. And I love that they stayed really, really faithful to the actual story because they could have created something to give it more of a sense of closure. Yes. But I also see where, you know, I mean, the last spoken line is they're wandering off to the desert and Chani looks at him and says, this is only the beginning, which right. I think is phenomenal storytelling. Yeah. But also you're like, okay. <laughs> and I think like a lot of people are like, okay, so do I go read the book now or do I wait three years? Like, what do we do here? I was thinking about this the other day because you had recommended the book because, you know, yeah. because I listen to so much audio content when, while I work and yeah. I'm torn now because – I wonder, there's that thing when you, um, when I read The Martian, um, you make those mental images that are like yours. No one else has those mental images and you, and you get so attached to those mental images. And then when you watch the movie, now, when I think of The Martian, I think of Matt Damon, you know what I mean? And there's no, I can't change that. And I wonder now, there's two conflicting things happening in my brain. One is when I, if I read the book, I have no choice but to see those people as the characters. I have yep. no choice but to see the 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 ships the way they are in the movie. Yep. Um so the the experience is going to be maybe less magical than than it is sure. when you first read a book on your first yep. time through. Uh and then the second part is maybe I just want to wait to see the movie and enjoy yeah. it that way fully. 
you know yeah. uh yeah. So i'm torn now <laughs> right and and it makes sense because for you you you're kind of experiencing the story as it is um right. but you're right you're going to see these characters i will say this so the the thing i loved about when i saw the lord of the rings uh, the fellowship of the ring for the first time is it's the first time i ever read a book and then watched a movie and it looked like it felt in my head yeah like i, I, agree. I like I agree. So much of it looked like how I imagined it. And I think they were just so intentional about being faithful. And also they leaned hard into any illustrations that had ever gone with the book. Yes. Um, I would say with this one, it's pretty damn close as well. Like, I really think that I, when I watched the 1980s version, I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> this one, I really think they nailed it. I think they get okay. the look really 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 well really close like i'm very content with this being how i see these characters what, forever what, especially if i read any of the sequels which i've not yet decided if i'm gonna well, do or not well one thing that i was grateful for in this adaptation was aside from uh like jason momoa and then uh even uh what was what's his face um uh, hold on a second uh, Dave Batista is in this yeah. as well. He's a bad As, guy. Yeah. Aside from those two, I mean, even Josh Bro- Josh Brolin is obviously a big, famous person, right? Yeah. But I feel like he's one of those characters, especially as he ages, he can kind of slip into these characters and just yeah. be them. Um, but I was grateful in this movie that some a lot of the main characters are not oh super, God. super giant actors that you – like. I don't want to see Tom Hanks playing one of these characters. No. You know what I mean? No, because um, it would pull you out of the movie. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, Tom Hanks is amazing, but kind of always Tom Hanks, which is exactly. great because being Tom Hanks is great. Right. This cast is so good. And I, yes. I cannot stress this enough. They cast this movie almost perfectly. They it's, really, they really, really, really pull you in. There were one or two. Uh, there's, there's, uh, Dr. Kynes in the book is a dude and they, and they made Dr. Kynes a woman in the story, which I think actually serves the story really well. Um, maybe one or two things where I'm like, oh, that person looks different than they did in my head. And mm. then watching, I was like, oh, this is better. Okay. Um, okay. you know, uh, like really, 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 really well done. I mean, so again, just, for me being blind to this, the casting, like, even uh, so, like the Duke, Oscar Isaac's uh, as Duke Leto, totally believe because at first because I I knew nothing going in, into this, so I didn't know in the beginning. Okay, is this is he going to be a dick? Like is he like yep. this conniving? And then immediately you realize that he's a genuine person. That's like he's the le- real thing. He's the real yeah, thing. He's like and Ned his, Stark. He's such a good dude. And his even even just the way he looks makes yep. you believe that. And the other one that like just was so perfectly, perfectly cast was the Reverend mother um, because she is so, so, so terrifying. Number one, the wardrobe is amazing on the, for for those ladies. Um, But like, she is like so terrifying in that scene, but you also know that she's like a legit badass. Like she like is so powerful and like, very, very uh, amazing. Um, she's yeah, she's creepy AF too. I mean, the Benny Jesserts, even the the um, the, I don't know if you remember the soundtrack for the Benny Jesserts. Let me see if I can. Okay. Put it close to the mic. Yeah. And I think they're just saying Benny Jesserts over and over and over again. It's so disturbing 
And when she's on screen, it's so creepy. And so what I love is that they communicate simultaneously that she is like dangerous, not to be trusted. But also you realize that Paul's mom, Jessica, is a part of this order. So she herself is a badass. Well, a couple things about that. So number one, in in, uh, response to that music, um, Hans Zimmer in that podcast that I mentioned earlier talks about how they wanted the, the through line, um, in the audio to be the female voice. Yep. So all the voices that you hear in this, uh, soundtrack are female voices really driving home that like, uh, like maternal and also just feminine, uh, force in, in the soundtrack. And wow, like phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, yeah. But then the other thing I wanted to mention, you just like touched on the thing that like sort of hit me in this movie is, and again, this is someone who's completely blind to the story. Don't really, I don't know what, what's going to come in the second movie or whatever. But what I love about uh, the Reverend Mother and, 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 and Jessica is I love in any kind of movie or TV show where you don't quite know how you're supposed to feel about a given character where you don't know, is this a bad guy? Is this a good guy? Like one character that always sticks out to me is, um, um, from Deadwood. Um, oh my God. Al Swearingen. Al Swearingen. Yeah. Cause like you start off and you hate him. You hate the villain of the show, but then you have no choice, but you fall in love with him halfway through that series. You know what I mean? I love when, 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 when movies do that and they put you in that position of like, is this a, is this a bad guy? That's just a bad guy. Is this a bad guy? That's on a redemptive arc. Is this a good guy? You know? And what I love about the dichotomy between Jessica and the Reverend mother is Jessica is, I'm saying that right. Right. That's yeah. 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 Okay. Um, They're both in the same order. Yeah. But Jessica, emits that maternal like when she's yeah. outside of that room praying for her yeah. son, doing the mantra with her yeah. son yep i connected with that because i mean oh you God. and i can both connect to that because we know yep. that our mothers have both been on their knees praying for us yep. throughout our lives you know what i mean yep. um and you like you love that character you love that maternal instinct that you see in her but then when you see the reverend mother you're like this person is I don't think that they're supposed to be good. Like, you know know what I mean? Um, Yeah. And it's like a broken version or a shadow version of the same thing. And this is the idea is that the Bene Gesserit have been interfering behind the scenes in politics for centuries, in theory, for good. Right. But one of the things that the movie and the book do expertly is you do not get a sense of good from the Reverend mother. And so there's this idea of, is it really for good? Have, have, have they lost the plot or is it just to bring about their own machinations? And what you get from Jessica is Jessica loves her son. Jessica loves Duke Leto. Duke Leto loves Jessica. These are good people. Um, and so the beginning of the movie is about their family. Like it's just, it's a beautiful family dynamic. Well, there's that beautiful scene when they're laying in bed and he says to Jessica, like, I should have married you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. it's like you, you, this family loves each other. And oh man, sorry, I'm getting a little sidetracked. But the other scene when, when the Duke and Paul are, are walking together oh, and, uh, and he's saying like so how he's going to inherit all this or whatever. And he said, I don't know if I actually, I don't, I don't remember the dialogue, but it's something to yeah, the effect like, of, I, I don't know it? if I want it. Yeah. And his dad has that beautiful monologue back to him where he says, basically, like, I don't, I don't care. 
because at the end you'll of the day, you'll still you're be my the son. only thing you. I, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. My son. So good. So good. So good. Brilliant line delivery. You feel it, and it's it's the character of these characters. Like that's yes. the thing that I that I like is that um, there's a lot of movies and stories that have very black and white characters where there's yes. like archetype good guy bad guy yeah. there's a lot of stories especially now that lean into the complexity of character so like every villain has to have a reason and a redemptive component dune does both really really well yeah yeah like you can have complicated motivations and um and a lot of shadow there's a shadow to everything in this film and i mean that in the Jungian sense and still have good people it's really right. really great and also still have really bad people yeah <laughs> it's yeah. Kind of, yeah i mean the the other thing is the the uh, baron harkonnen um throws some serious serious apocalypse now vibes right <laughs> yeah uh he is terrifying yeah as a villain and he's he's Almost creepier in the book. I think they do a masterful job of making him an okay. imposing and terrifying force in the movie. Um, Visually, like, he's really, I mean, similar, a similar vibe to the older movie, right? Like they sort of like. Well, yeah, in the book, he's so fat that he has um, anti-gravity things attached to him so he can move around. Okay. And they do that in both um, movie versions. Right. But it comes across as like bombastic and silly okay. in the eighties version. Okay. He's this like over the top villain. And in this one, like uh nerd reference, he feels like the kingpin of crime in the Spider Man comics. He's this okay. massive imposing force. Right. Um, who yeah, like he's a big, big obese monster, but you also feel like he could punch his fist through a wall. Um He has and, that sort and, of he has that sort of um Almost like Mafia Don esque, mm -hmm. like uh, like lazy, exactly. like yes. not lazy in the sense of th that he's fat, but but lazy in the sense of like his menacing is so like effortless for him. You know what I mean? Like he feels like yeah, like the way he even delivers his lines, like that the scene when he's in the the tub or whatever, and he comes out and his yeah. eyes are closed and he's just giving orders and and like there's that menacing vibe and he's not yeah. even looking at the camera, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> and like what do we what about what about the Fremen? He's just like kill them all. Yeah. Um, or, or he, you know, he gives his word to the Reverend Mother, who's not to be trifled with, that he won't kill Jessica or Paul because right. they're they're sort of the property of the Bene Gesserit. So they they the Reverend Mother helps set up this whole betrayal, and then she says, "You don't you don't kill them," and uh, he says, "Absolutely, I won't kill them." And she like three seconds is out, and he says to his advisor, "Oh yeah, we're gonna kill him." Yeah. <laughs> he goes, "We won't we won't do it ourselves, right, In right. case they use their psychic powers to ask us if we did it, but we'll we'll throw we'll feed them to the desert." Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which was a mistake. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> yeah, really 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 well cast. The one that I was nervous about was Jason Momoa cuz I was like he feels out of step and I feel like bit. he's going to pull me out of this. And there were moments that I was like, "Oh, it's Jason Momoa without a beard. I've never seen that before." But I feel like his kind of like boyish charm actually worked for that character. Like I enjoyed him as uh, It's okay. He, I, he is the one that of any of them did pull yeah. me out a little bit. Yep. Um, even Dave Batista a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. But more so for me, it was Jason Momoa just because he's Jason Momoa. Like he looks yeah. the way he looks, you know, yeah. like there's just he no escaping be Jason it. Momoa. Yeah. Fight scenes though. Oh yeah. Badass. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Great, great, great. So crazy. So, so like um, this is what it comes to. What do you think the movie's about? So I, 
there's a lot like we can't get into all of it. Maybe Mm -hmm. we'll just touch on a few things. There's a lot in this movie that I would like to break down. There's so many different things psychologically, spiritually, mythically that we could get into. Um, Before I tell you why Frank Herbert wrote the book, what do you think it's about? I mean, the easy sort of sort of like the, the, the broad strokes to me is obviously can can against all odds can good will out right can 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 good intentions defeat an overwhelming force of uh corruption and Mm. you know what i mean um and i i feel like that's where they're it has to get to eventually right it has to get to that good intentions and because again you know the, the the theme that like really feels true and real to me is the family dynamic there and you do get the sense of these are good people that genuinely want the best for not only themselves Mm -hmm. but for everyone even the 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 interaction of the father talking about how they're going to try to work with the um the the what was the name of the people the that fremen. live the fremen, the fremen like how they want people. to work with them and they want to be uh stewards of the land sort of you know what i mean um so you have this hope that good can will out yeah. but obviously the empire uh, much like in star wars is this giant imposing evil force that seems almost yeah. impossible to overtake um so yeah i mean as far as a broad stroke that's sort of the vibe i get i don't know um, yeah no, that's a really good one. There's so many themes layered on top of each other. Um, yeah. And I think that's a good one because it is. I mean, it is It is absolutely uh, a few good people who nearly get stamped out of existence right. trying to overcome overwhelming odds. The yeah. empire, uh, the emperor, this absolutely ruthless and brutal house that's trying to exterminate them. Um, so that's there. And – what I like about it is it's uh, there's also this component of fate, right? And mm, so, so yeah. we'll start there in a minute. But but one thing I do just want to call out before we jump in is that amongst other things, when Frank Herbert wrote this, he said that he was trying to write a story about the danger of messiahs and religious fanaticism. Oh, wow. And we're going to get to that in a second. Um, also... At the time that he wrote it, the metaphor, spice was oil and Arrakis was the Middle East. Right. Like, yep. really, yep. really clear. Mm-hmm. They throw the word jihad around a lot mm-hmm. in the book. I okay. don't think they used it once in the film. Right. I think they opted not to use that, which yeah. probably is a good idea. Um, but the idea of holy war plays a big part of it. One of the things that I I think it's very, very implicit in the movie, but it's not as loud as it is in the book is that Paul does not want to be this Messiah. And right. the reason that he doesn't want to be the Messiah is not only because he doesn't want the weight and the burden of it, just like he didn't want to be, again, didn't want to be the Duke. Now right. he finds out he might be being maneuvered into taking on the mantle of this Messiah that's been prophesied for generations, even more terrifying. Yeah. But when he starts having his psychic visions... What he sees over and over and over again is him leading people into battle, and it's a bloodbath. Mm. You know, he has that one, like, total freak out with his mom where he says, um, you know, I see myself basically leading uh, – we'll use the word crusade. Yeah. That's a, it's a, a better word, I think, a more appropriate word to use. I see myself leading a crusade in in my father's honor, right? And he talks about people like worshiping at the altar of, of his father's skull mm-hmm. or something and then going out and just 
there being warfare and slaughter all throughout the cosmos. And he does not want that blood on his hands. And right. that's the reason he doesn't want to be the Messiah is he does not want to start a holy war. Yeah. And he's doing everything he can to resist that. And yet, you know, we have this idea. He says, gets mad at his mom when he has that freak out scene and he screams at her and he says, you did this to me. Uh, with all your Benny Jesuit bullshit, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get this idea that the prophecy has been engineered and he is being maneuvered into this. And yet there are weird little coincidences where you also find yourself going, and is this also a real prophecy? Like, is this fate? Right. Is fate at work? And then mm -hmm. it begs the question, can fate manipulate people who are trying to manipulate history. So it's wild stuff. So, so I think, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but like my first, my first wondry would be like, what do you think about fate? And I'm pretty sure we both know where you land on this, but, but yeah. what do you think about fate or this idea, this romantic notion that people fall back on that everything happens for a reason? Yeah, definitely not. I definitely fall these days on uh, that. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of all entropy. It's kind of all chaos, you know. Um, and and I actually find more comfort in that these days. Um, yeah. You know, going back to the way I used to think um, when it was all magical thinking uh, based on the, the particular religious upbringing I had, um, it felt certain. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if we've talked about it on this podcast. I know I talked about it on um, on Eric's podcast. Um, but But letting go of my certainty... <clears throat> has actually become a very comforting thing in my life. Yeah. Um, leaning into, you always talk about how your, your wounds become your health bestowing wounds, you know? And, and one of the hardest things for me uh, when I went through my sort of dark night of the soul was, was losing that certainty, um, losing the idea that there was fate, that this was all working together for the good, you know, that I was on yeah. some, some per some purpose or some path. Um, and now, the letting go of that has become the thing that is sort of my mantra these days, which is yeah. like, like the, the, the embracing of the uncertainty, the embracing of the idea that tomorrow I might think drastically different than I do today. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, as far as fate goes in that sort of, um, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in fate in that way. Yeah. Um, but what about you? I mean, obviously you've, your spiritual, your life story has dramatically shifted, but also yeah. but you've sort of stayed in that world of faith and faith and fate, I think sometimes tend to be linked. They do. And, um, the, that's, it's a good question. Um, and, and I, and I'm going to say the number one reason that I like Dune as a movie and as a book is because I feel like Dune lives where I live, which is that it's, it moves between yeah. making you feel like there are greater forces at work and there is almost a supernatural destiny and fate. And then at other points it's like, Nope, this has all been engineered <laughs> yeah. and this has been fostered upon us and we have to do the best we can to navigate right. it well. And I think I give myself permission to both believe that everything happens for a reason mm -hmm. And to believe that it's all chaos. Yeah. Um, and, and this is going to sound insane. Uh, I might lose a friend or two on this one statement. But the closest thing I've had to a very intense uh, mystical or psychedelic experience, almost to the point of breakdown, 
was uh, at a very, very intense moment of my life. I almost experienced myself talking to Leviathan, right? The chaos principle of the universe, which sounds okay. crazy, but, but here's the deal, man. Um, and I, and I remember like in a state of dream asking the question, like, I know everything belongs, but why does it have to hurt so fucking much? Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I find great comfort in chaos, mm -hmm. which is paradoxical, but I do, yeah. uh, you know, so, you know, like I went through this season. Okay. I grew up evangelical like you mm -hmm. and I was taught everything happens for a reason and God has a plan. Mm -hmm. But when you live that way, you start to take things very personally. Like yes. when bad things happen, you're like, God, why are you doing this to me? And when you live in a community that way, it gets really dangerous because people judge you. When you, Oof. when you hit a lot of misfortune, they're like, oh my God, Ugh. there's an Aiken in the camp. Like, what did you do wrong yes. to cause God to let you have these series of misfortunes? So I lived. Uh, 28 years of my life like that. And then what broke me out of it was I experienced a series of misfortunes, just boom, 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 one after the other that were so intense, right? That culminated, they didn't start with, they culminated in my brother's suicide. Yeah. They culminated in my mom dying on the six month anniversary of my brother's suicide. They culminated in, in that three weeks while my mom was in the hospital in 2008, the stock market had a record crash and a, and a theater that I had been working for a year and a half to save. And we had just gotten it out of the red into the black and got paid off like $60,000 in debt. And then there was a crash and it wiped it out. And it culminated in a series of other things happening mm -hmm. to the point that I was like, this is too poetic to yeah. all be coincidence, mm. but it makes me feel like I'm cursed. And I, and I want to pivot for a second and say, like, I have a very dear friend named Mirabai Starr, who is, who is a sort of a, she's, she's like a, a, a comparative religions scholar in her early career and has studied with a lot of different traditions. Um, so I like her kind of ability to pull uh, deep truths out of a lot of different world religions. But what I really dig about her as a teacher is she is a person who has experienced an insane amount of death in her life. Mm. I have okay. experienced more death at my age than anyone my age should have experienced. And you roll back the clock 15 years ago, I was saying that. Mm -hmm. um, you and I have maybe a friend yeah. or two who've lived mm -hmm. that yep. and, and, and carried it. And Mirabai has said to me, there are just some of us who live closer to death. She had a sibling mm -hmm. that died. Her high school love was killed in a gun accident. Um, she mm -hmm. later translated a... a and an edition of John of the Cross's Dark Knight of the Soul. And on the day that the book came out and the book arrived at her doorstep was the day that her teenage daughter was killed in a car accident. Ugh. Like she has experienced so much death. Yeah. I have, uh, I'm in a grief and trauma program right now. Um, uh, like a sort of a, a graduate certificate program. And the guy who's running it is a person who um, earlier in his life, his brother was killed in a shipwreck. His young wife and mother of his two children died from cancer. And within a year or two of that, um, his mother-in-law was driving somewhere with his two infant daughters in the car and was hit by a car and everyone was killed. Oh my God. So like, sorry, listeners, this is very heavy. I'm going to have to put a trigger warning on this one. Yeah. Um, and so Mirabai, then their friends, and this guy trained her in grief work and she's a certified grief counselor. And, um, 
when she and I first connected, I said to her, is there something about being on the spiritual path that causes you to experience more suffering? And she said the most profound thing to me. She said to me, my opinion is no, shit just happens. (laughs) But if you let it, it can supercharge your spiritual life. Mm. recently she was just on pete holmes podcast if you want to listen to her like a week or two ago she was on an episode of you made it weird and she talks about experiencing all this suffering and she says the thing that she needed to be delivered from when all this suffering happened was the myth that she was special and so she had this moment where she realized that in grieving for her lost child she was grieving with all the mothers through time who have lost children which is a lot of mothers if you go back like 200 years it's the majority of the human race right it's Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable and she said when she realized that she wasn't special and she wasn't cursed it set her free and then what happens is when it kind of shifts from um, what does this mean? Why is God making it happen to how do I make this meaningful? Living in a chaotic universe, I have the agency to create meaning. Right. That is very powerful and it is very liberating. And so I say all that to say, I had to let go of this real belief that like I was cursed. Yeah. Uh, because, because, you know, my, I had deconstructed evangelical Christianity by the time all that happened. You remember this. Mm-hmm. My cerebral cortex was no longer evangelical, but my lizard brain, my brainstem yeah, sure yeah. as shit was. Yeah. And so those <laughs> deep fear voices were like, you're cursed by God. You walked away from the true church yeah. and your true calling. And now you're doing all this Jungian contemplative bullshit. And this is what happens. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I had to deconstruct that. Yeah. And I say all that to say that having come out the other side of it, I have this beautiful belief that I still let myself live sometimes as if mm-hmm. fate is real right? and that things are happening for a reason. But the other thing I love about Dune and I love about Paul's prophecies, and maybe we'll get into this, is that just because it's happening for a reason doesn't mean you can figure it out. And a lot of times it's not the reason you think because prophecy yeah. is a very, very slippery beast, uh, yeah. whether you believe in it or you don't. So that's a really, really long answer to say like fate for me, yes and no. Mm. It depends on the day that you catch me. And I find that it's most meaningful when I can live as if the universe is chaotic because it's a free universe. And I choose to believe in an omnicompetent divine force that is directing it all towards a good end. Mm-hmm. But but when I think about the omnicompetent force directing it to a good end, um, I think more about that as there being divinity suffering with me in the midst of everything and less as like god as a giant chess player who's like ha, 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 mike for the third time a drunk driver has hit your parked car and wrecked it <laughs> which yeah, yeah. you know like wouldn't work for me and also just, just yeah. isn't my jam so um it's go it's, no i just want to unpack that a little bit because it's interesting because some of the things you're talking about there resonate with me i mean number one the when you talk about your lizard brain bringing up the the old evangelical it's really hard to oh, let yeah. that stuff go, right? That stuff lives. Years. I mean, I still, sometimes things happen and, and I go back to some of those old problematic yep. um, ideas that we grew up with, you know, um, yeah. and that is a hard, hard, hard thing to, to let go of. Um, <clears throat> I don't think you can get there cognitively. 
Yeah. You know, we can say more about this in a second, but I don't think, I think you can mentally deconstruct all that stuff, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't think that touches the lizard brain and yeah. that early programming. You want to talk about the Benny Gesserit programming people for prophecy. <laughs> you, we grew up in that shit yeah. from the time you're very young. Those, those messages about hell and those messages about God being in control and those messages about be a good person or the universe will punish you. That shit gets into your cells. Totally. And, and it's, it's one of those things where even uh, I'm trying to think of like going through my brain and think of, uh, of examples, but even for me, sometimes, you know, one, one kind of dumb example is like a lot of times I, I, I get the sense like, you know, I'll be working on something or whatever. I, I build things all the time and I'll have a bad day where any maker will tell you there's just bad days sometimes yeah. building stuff and things fall apart and you don't get there. And yeah. sometimes I'll get in that mindset of like, I'm a, I'm a bad, I'm failing because I'm a bad person and like I'm failing, like I'm not good enough. And I'm, and it's a lot of that sort of old programming yeah. of because this is happening, it's because of you, you know what I mean? <laughs> because you are somehow a bad person or whatever, you know, and that's a dumb example, but, th- but those, no, it's a great example. In. They creep in, you know what I mean? Um, you know, you know, my favorite book in the entire Christian scripture is the book of Job. Yeah. And the reason I love the book of Job so much is because this is what it wrestles with. Yeah. So much bad shit happens to Job that it can't be random coincidence. Yeah. And everybody thought he was a good person. And then they all pivot and they're like, well, you must be a bad person. You must have done something to cause this. Right. And it's, it's those beliefs, man, they live in your brain, Sam, and they're, and they're traumatic. Um, you want to hear, you want to hear a fate story that also is relevant to what we're talking about? Go for it, man. Sure. So I mentioned this at the top of the episode. I had this crazy um, experience where I'm here in New Mexico before I'm coming home for this wedding and weird shit is happening. Someone crashes into my um, parked car. Mm-hmm. Uh, a dog bites my key fob and it breaks or I, or it <laughs> flew or something. And then my car alarm is going off all the time. There were two or three other weird things that happened. I then have this car that I'm driving in Pennsylvania and the alarms going on and off all the time. The mm-hmm. alarm goes off in my, um, in my hotel room. I'm back in Pennsylvania. Okay. And I'm like, why the hell is this happening? I don't love it. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I'm like having that conversation with myself where I'm like, I don't believe in fate. Right, I don't right. believe that everything happens for a reason. And yeah. yet there's so much poetic irony to this. Mm-hmm. And I pause and I do what I do which is like, I put my question out mm-hmm. to, to God, to the divine, to the universe, use the language that you want, listener. I'm talking to God. And I go, okay, fine. I give up. I fucking give up. What is happening here? And I remember something, which is that I'm not been excited to come back to Pennsylvania fully because I'm excited to see my friends, but also there's people here who've really, really hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, intentionally and by accident, like some, some professional and personal deep betrayals, yep. where as you know, my story, yep. the part of the story that I don't talk about where mm-hmm. I was content to peace out and go to New Mexico. And I'm not excited about being back in the place of that hurt or, right. or seeing those people. And so I'm like, okay, there's that. And I'm thinking about Pennsylvania. And I also remember all these alarms are going off. And I remember that I used to live in this big old stone farmhouse, mm. as you know, because we had many a good fire there. Yeah. The thing about that farmhouse, Ryan, is it was so old. It was so drafty that when there was a strong wind, that wind would get into the house and it would set off all the smoke detectors, okay. all of them. <laughs> I never figured out how not to have those smoke detectors going off at all hours of the night when there was a strong wind. Yeah. Um, and the only alternative was just pull them all out of the walls. Right. 
which my landlord was not a fan of. Yeah. Because he's like, look, <laughs> you can't die by fire in here. Like, we have right. to come up with a better solution. Yeah. And I realized something once upon a time that I was reminded of as I'm driving home from State College in this car with the alarm going off and the doors locking and closing. Having alarms that are false alarms that go on and off that you also can't get rid of because you Mm. genuinely need them to protect your life Mm. is exactly what it's like to live with trauma and hurt in your background. Yeah. Because what happens is things are triggering you all the time that are, that are riling you up. And when you know you have trauma in your past and something triggers you, you get all fired up. Your body reacts to a present situation in a full on fight, flight, or freeze. Yep. Right? Your heart rate speeds up. You're either, you're either freezing to be camouflaged. You want to run away and avoid the situation or you want to clobber whatever it is. Yep. And you have to do the work to slow down that reaction and say, is this a legitimate reaction? Am I really in danger? Right? Yep. So one, is it a primitive reaction that would help me avoid a saber toothed right. tiger, but is not necessarily helpful when my coworker is being a dick? Right. Two, is this something even really happening or has someone accidentally poked an old wound that I have that is a memory of a very legitimate, like real trauma yep. or real hurt or real betrayal? And one, what do I do with that? And how do I separate the past from the present? Which is just why it's the same reason that like literally something bad can happen and you default back to that old script. You don't even believe in God anymore. And you're like, I'm a bad person. And therefore I'm, I'm getting right. bad karma or the universe yep. is punishing me. Yeah. So, so I have this realization while I'm driving. I go, that's it. That's why this is happening. Maybe not. Maybe just in my head. Maybe I made meaning out of a series of coincidences. Yep. Immediately after I have that realization, I figure out how to fix the sensor on my door. It all stops. Yeah. I then encounter three people, let's say um, sort of family members that I don't really talk to much anymore yep. in the mm-hmm. next 12 hours. In the next 24 hours, I have to interact with three of them. In every one of those conversations, randomly and unprovoked, one of those people confesses a trauma Mm. that I didn't know about or a mental health diagnosis that Mm. I didn't know about. Coincidentally, three separate conversations with three people that have hurt me deeply in my life at different points and randomly by sheer coincidence. Yeah. Every one of them says something and my immediate reaction when they say it is, I can't not have compassion for this person anymore. Yeah. Because they are traumatized and that is why they have done hurtful things in the world. Right. Is because they're trying to carry this overwhelming hurt. Yeah. It's crazy. And then the last day, I accidentally ended up in column seal. Mm Mm-hmm. And which is like my favorite place to pray and meditate by sheer coincidence with nothing to do for an hour. And I was like, I'm going to create a ritual because I have to move deeper into forgiveness Mm. and let some of this go and have compassion for all these people. Now, did fate cause all that to line up? (laughs) Sure as shit felt like it. Right, right. But even if it didn't, was it something that I was able to like bring together to create meaning? I hope so. Right. Did it, did it turn you know, one of my wounds into maybe a health bestowing wound. I mean, I hope so. Yeah. Sorry, that was a really long ass story. You can cut that later if you want. No, that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But yeah, I think, I mean, 
those things are very hard sometimes to unpack, you know, um, dude, there's, there's even, even going in a, in a slightly different direction with that. But, um, but like talk about like things that are just rooted, your traumas that are rooted in you and how hard it is, you know, not in a spiritual, we talked about the spiritual, but you know, you know, my trauma that I went through that, that is, yeah. that sparked my whole sort of conversion. Yep. And every now and again, there's things in my life where, like you said, they're, they're prickled. There's, there's a little prick, you know, that like just yep. touches me a little bit. And then I start that accusing part of my brain starts yep. remembering and thinking, Oh, this person is doing this yep. or that person is doing this. And what, a this isn't about fate, but this is just about that, that trauma and like how hard yeah. it is to unpack that stuff and work through those things. But like you're saying to be sort of at least cognizant of it and aware of it, is the important part, right? To, to recognize it and sort of play with it in your mind a little bit and, and try to work through it. You want a wild quote? <laughs> Go for it, buddy. Carl Jung says, if we don't make the unconscious conscious, we will meet it in the external world and call it fate. Ooh. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In other words, like when we, we, we talked about this in our Groundhog Day episode, mm which seems to be everybody's favorite. When we find ourselves in the same situations over and over again, we're like, why does this keep happening to me? And Jung is like, because you haven't worked out your baggage and you don't realize how and why you're steering yourself into the same situation over totally, and over again. Because I can, I can in the, in the specific like trauma triggers that I'm thinking of, yep. it would be very, very, if I wasn't aware of this, it would be very, very easy for me to say, oh, well, this is just what happens to me. This is just yeah. the thing that, yep. that life delves out to me and I'm always cursed or yep. whatever, you know, and then I would yep. go back to my old spiritual upbringing of, oh, you're yep. cursed. You, did the, you didn't say the right prayer or because you walked away from the faith, yep. this is all happening to you. And yep. yeah, man, holy shit. What a good quote. That's amazing. It's, That's great. It's really good. And, and just to get real practical in case, you know, anybody's listening and can relate to this, like what I have found personally is that um, I, I can't think my way out of that stuff. Like I mm -hmm. literally have had to do, uh, and ironically, a lot of stuff that comes out of the contemplative tradition um, sounds and feels a lot like what trauma studies are now realizing are good ways to get at those things in your brainstem, which is learning to still yourself, mm -hmm. um, engaging in deep breath work, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which has always been a part of Christian meditation. It's not something mm -hmm. a lot of people know. Um, and then even for me, uh, a lot of like mantra based meditation or prayers that I mm -hmm. repeat over and over again. Mm -hmm. But, um, like, so for example, I had the, the, the fear of hell was yep. something I grew up with. And um, not for me. I knew I wasn't going to hell, but I was worried about everyone else that I cared about. Yeah. And then um, I deconstructed that a long time ago. Right. And I, I seized on this idea of the apocatastasis. That was kind of my first liberation from that was realizing that in the early church, a lot of people preached universal salvation. Mm -hmm. They didn't, you know, yeah. this idea that like people were going to hell forever to suffer was, was they, they didn't think that's what Jesus was actually saying. It's not, right? So, right. um. But then I had to engage in, or, or what Buddhists call meta meditation, where I would meditate and proactively send goodwill to all people, mm -hmm. um, or, or, or initially like pray for the salvation of all humanity, send goodwill towards all people, uh, set my intention to participate in the healing of the soul of the world, and doing that mm -hmm. rote practice over and over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. was what with with breathing and stillness was what helped me start to deprogram the trauma that lived in my brainstem. Yeah. And I don't think 
I could have done it without that mm. because I was so, um, cause again, there was like a solid 10 years that I had intellectually deconstructed all of it, but right. If the right, right thing gets poked, you're just right back there. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. So like backing up from fate and looking at Paul, um, again, <clears throat> and, and just to say this, Paul, who doesn't want to start a holy war crusade, but also watched his friends and family get straight up murdered. Right. Yeah. So like yep. has his own trauma and lots of reason mm-hmm. to start a mad revenge crusade. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to carry all that. So super relevant, but to, to take a step back from that, just, just for a minute, I'd love to ask you about the idea of calling in general. Okay. Because I feel like as evangelicals, we grew up a lot with this idea of, well, you need to figure out what your calling is. What's the thing that you're called to? What's the thing that God wants you to do? And then and then for me personally, growing up in a family of church planners uh, who basically just wanted me to work for them, I have been told so many times, oh, you have a calling. You have a destiny. You're going to change the world. I've been hearing that my whole life, which is always followed by, <clears throat> and because of that, you need to come work for me doing this yeah. highly underpaid. I, I, you know, I've gotten that speech so many different times from so many different church leaders. Uh, so it's something that's, that's frequently hacked and manipulated, but, but what do you think calling in general, right? Oh, same thing of like, who's the person you're called to like finding your one true love even, even falls. Yeah. So did you get a lot of that in your evangelical upbringing? <laughs> I'm laughing because this is definitely a pressure point for me. Um, okay. Because, and let me see if I can articulate this well. Similar to you, so you're, so you're. I think, I think language is important here. Um, distinguishing between church words and what they actually were, I think, talking about. Yeah. So your particular, what I will call proclivity, is to study and reading and telling story. I would yeah. say, in general, I think that's kind of a good summation of what your proclivities are and what kind of drive you in your life, right? And in your particular case, that was called your calling to be a preacher. Yeah. My proclivities at a very, very, very young age, before I knew anything about spiritual, I mean, I always went to church, but before any of that uh, indoctrination was sort of felt or or understood in any real way, um, I was always a musician. I beat on pans. I remember my first, I put them on my first concert, quote unquote, um, you know, air quotes, um, in my parents' backyard. We, I sat, I set up a keyboard in my, in, on the steps of the chicken coop on our farm. (laughs) I love that. And I, you know, it was one of those old Casio keyboards that had a drum beat on it. So you let the drum beat play. And I didn't know anything about notes or anything. And I just started banging on the keys and I wrote these little dumb songs and I would, and I put on a concert. I brought chairs out, you know. And then over my time, you know, I transitioned, I learned uh, piano for a time, I learned trumpet, uh, eventually got into guitar. And then within minutes of coming to the church that you and I both attended, the fact that I was a musician and that was my proclivity and the thing I was into, all of a sudden it wasn't just something I was into, it was my calling. Yep. And I can't tell you how many, especially in the early days, you know, that church, I would say over time... We always had our foot in that um, Pentecostal world. Yeah. In my memory, maybe maybe you remember this differently, but in my mind, in the early days, we were a little bit more Pentecostal than we ended up towards the yeah. end. And I can remember a lot more. 100%. Sp- yes. It, I can remember it a lot. It became a lot more middle of the road evangelical as time went on. 
Yes. And I can remember in the early days, a lot more guest speakers coming in and a lot of people getting up, up, up on stage and prophesying in air quotes again over people. Yeah, I and, that. and I can remember so many occasions that I was embarrassed by and felt really uncomfortable about some random dude from some big mega church coming and talking and finding out that I played guitar and saying, you are called to change lives and change the yep. world and change hearts yep. and change minds. And I never really, that always felt off to me yeah. because I always recognized the fact that culturally speaking, playing guitar, even at work, people would always call me the rock star, even though I, yeah. I'm not a fucking rock star. I yeah. play in punk bands. But culturally, playing a guitar is a status symbol. Yep. And so for somebody like me in the church, I was now called to change hearts and minds. Meanwhile, so it's, 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 it was duly problematic in my mind. Number one, yeah. for me, that felt like a lot of pressure that was yep. undeserved. And then for the other, for the, what about my buddy standing over here that doesn't play guitar, that is yep. just a normal human being, and they're not called? Yeah. That whole system of calling in the church, man. Yeah, it really went, brings up a lot of pain. In, in, and, in and, it, and it's also <laughs> like, let's. Oh, well, I, I got that too. If I had a dollar for every person who prophesied with me, actually, you know, um, this is going to be a long episode. You're going to have to cut a lot out. We sorry. are. Um, I I had a, a ex girlfriend who had a very tumultuous relationship with who I had a conversation with about two years ago from way back. You'll figure it out if you think about it. One uh-huh. of my early early loves. Yep. And who is also now a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said something really, really perceptive to me about my early life. She said, do you think, she's like, I'm just thinking about like drama, the gifted child stuff. Do you think it was harmful to you that so many people told you that you were called to change the world? That so many people prophesied over you that you were talented and that, you know, your voice was going to go out and do all these things. And, and uh, and by the way, spoiler alert. Yes, it was. Yes. yes. 1000% um, yes. The, the, it, it wasn't until two years ago when I had like chronic mononucleosis for a year mm. and I literally was so sick. And my doctor was like, dude, I don't know what else to tell you to do yeah. other than to slow down. Yeah, like, yeah. I do not know how to communicate to you that you have to do less. And it forced me to stop doing a lot of the things, even, even in a very deconstructed, reconstructed, progressive, mm-hmm. contemplative place. Yeah. Um, and I had this sort of like spiritual epiphany where I was like, what if the universe is content that I'm just here being alive, being yeah. me? <laughs> and I let go of the, the finally, the like need to save the world, which, which you know, again, I'm at times have been a, an okay speaker. Mm-hmm. You're a very talented guitar player. Mm-hmm. The evangelical church needs speakers and guitar players. Yep. So that's where it was like, you have a special destiny. And like you said, um, it's a little bit of bullshit because it's super manipulative. Yeah. Uh, there's always a hook to like keep feeding the machine. And also it's sort of an abuse of something that I think is real, right? Jung talks a lot about this in that we do all have a calling in the sense that we are unique people yes. with unique strengths and weaknesses. Like you said, a proclivity. Um, Jung would say our deep self with a capital S are sort of, you know, I would say divine DNA or mm-hmm. like our psychological DNA, the, the yep. primary potential that we can fulfill in our life does call to us at points yeah. to show us what we experience as destiny. But like, hey, this is your path. Yeah. This is what you're good at. Mm. I I think we don't often get how much 
society has hacked that. Um, and I'll, and I'll take a swerve for a second just to not blame it all on evangelical Christianity. You know, I, I worked in this theater in Times Square for a while and I worked with a lot of actors and artists. And I cannot tell you, I was also doing spiritual direction at the time, how many conversations I had to have where I could say to someone, maybe you being faithful to your calling as an artist does not actually mean that you're going to end up playing on a stage in front of hundreds of thousands of people and making millions of dollars. Like maybe it means being true to your art without necessarily getting paid for it. Right. But, but, you know, but we don't think about that. Like a lot of that is, you know, that's where capitalism has hacked it the same way that evangelical Christianity has. It's like, well, if this is my calling, then it should be my job. Yeah. Well, I think both are sort of, what you just said there sort of sparked in me the idea that both are probably sort of um, almost a bastardization of the word calling, right? Yeah. Where where calling is, it's meaning more when they're using it that way, right? Yeah. Like like calling, like you're describing, like you know, like you're saying, Young was talking about. Yeah, I believe I'm. I was obviously I'm. I was sort of in my DNA called. Yeah. To be in the mu- the world of music and art and you know all these things, like of course, like it fits my skin. We've talked about this before. It fits my skin, right? Like yeah. I like, um, but like in and I'm going to speak to evangelical. That calling was then sort of manipulated into being not just the thing that you should be doing, but also the thing that like God made you for. And there's a responsibility attached to that, that if you don't follow it precisely Uh in the right way, you are somehow again, a bad person. (laughs) Um, And, and there's also like, I will say too, one other little aside on that, just to go and sorry, we're going down an evangelical rabbit hole here, but there's also, I, I can remember one conversation when I was in the, the deepest part of my depression. I was super, super messed up, still working at the church right before we kind of left or some of us got fired and others of us left. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) We covered both of those between the two of us. Um, uh, I remember being drawn into one particular person's office and thinking, Oh, well maybe this person's going to do what they're supposed to do and guide me and and help me through this situation. And their only word to me was don't lose your anointing. Yeah. And I remember thinking, yep. what does that even mean? Like, yeah. what, A, uh, let's just take that dumb evangelical word, Christianese, out of there. Yeah. Like, even if that is a real thing, what am I doing that I'm causing to, that to be lost? Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, I'm not yeah. doing it. I, I had a yeah. horrible thing happen to me. I'm depressed. What I need right now is probably some support from the people around me. <laughs> you know Dude, what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> Um, oh and that, yeah, what a, but we don't need to make this a bashing God, the evangelical church. I had a dollar for every time I was told I was anointed. I'm like, what does that mean? Like I have a modicum of talent. I'm a exactly. deeply spiritual person. I am. Yeah. Uh, but also there's always a hook with it. You're anointed. Therefore you have an obligation to do right. X, Y, Z. Right. And I get that with great power comes great responsibility says uncle Ben to Spider-Man. And I do think that's real. <laughs> and I think it helps us work in the world. You know, you and I as like, white dudes in 21st century America have a responsibility, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. to to live a certain way because of all the wrongs done by white dudes throughout all history. Right. But but even so, like that gets hacked and it gets abused. I yep. I um I went to a school, my doctoral program, 
uh, put a lot of emphasis on Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and this is something else that he identified, that in all great stories, there's a hero journey. Yeah. And in, in great stories the world over, there is a moment of calling. There's a call to adventure, and there's usually a refusal of the call. Right. And this is something that is an archetypal, fundamental human reality that most of us experience in our lives. Is it fate calling us to something? Is it us experiencing the calling of being who we really are and creating a true self? Is yeah. it a little bit of both? Yeah. Is it is it the same experience? Yes. And I think this is a beautiful thing. I will also tell you that my school, where I got to study calling and the hero's journey and the call to adventure, used the idea of calling and the hero's journey and the call to adventure to market the program. And they got me to pay six figures for a doctoral program by being like, follow your calling. And then I studied all that and I loved it. And I turned around and went, oh, you really did use these principles for marketing. And that's the thing a lot of people don't think about is that Joseph Campbell wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces and that book went out in an influenced culture. And so now people use it to make movies, right? He said right, that Joseph yep. Campbell or Joseph Campbell said George Lucas was the best student he ever had because George George Lucas used The Hero with a Thousand Faces to... um to make Star Wars, br yep. most brilliant hero journey of all time. Um, but here's the thing, Ryan. Businesses and corporations also know about the monomyth and the hero with a thousand faces. Yeah. And now we live in a day and an age. It's not just evangelical Christianity. Right. Like literally, there are <laughs> corporations all around us that are trying to use this inborn sense of calling and purpose or responsibility or right. a hero journey to market shit to us all the time. Yeah. This is something that you live trying to find in a world where it's constantly being hacked by people <laughs> around you who want to manipulate you. <laughs> oh my God. So true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the funny thing is like a lot of us, you know, whatever, like, you know, we spend, what's the old like union thing. You spend the first half of your life building a life you think you're supposed to build. And then you second half of your life actually trying to be an authentic person and be who you really are. Yeah. Um, but the irony is for, for dudes like you and I, who had this sense of calling fostered upon us, that first half of life building the life you were told you were supposed to build is often in the guise of thinking you are doing what is your authentic right. calling and purpose in life. We right. are way down a rabbit hole right now. But that's what I love about Paul Atreides' journey is he is figuring this shit out yep. the entire time. Yep. Do I have the option to evade this destiny? Is this engineered by the people around me who are trying to manipulate politics and the empire and me? Mm -hmm. Is there an actual supernatural force at work? Yeah. Um, what is my responsibility to navigate all of this? Yeah. And how do I resist the urge to create a universal wide conflict yeah. that's a that's a never ending bloodbath? Um, maybe a little more intense than you and I, but go. I have one question about that. So, like, yeah. um, from our perspective, we can get that sense that it might be fate or it might be a manipulation of yeah. situations. Does Paul in the book? Yeah. Is Paul aware of that dichotomy? Yeah. Or, he actually uh, thinks it's bullshit to start. Okay. Um, he, he, and it's like this slow eroding of his resistance. And it's almost a tragic, like breaking of his will because he's okay. like, this is bullshit and I don't want it. Not yeah. only don't I want it, 
but I I know it's not real. Okay. I know you, Benny Gesserits, this is a trick. It's okay. a long con that you're playing on the universe. Okay. But then... Careful about spoilers. <laughs> no, no, I'm staying okay. in the movie. Okay, okay. He starts to have psychic visions. Right, 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 okay. And then that's the thing of like, is this real prophecy? Is yeah. this real destiny? Am I being drawn towards this? Um, and without spoilers, one other question. Yeah. Do you think they ever, do they ever answer that question? Satisfactorily, they do not answer the question to satisfaction. Okay. I, I think, I think they do a really, really good job of, of both ending the whole thing. I think it's really, really well done. Gotcha. I haven't okay. read the sequels because I've been, everybody, everybody has one sequel book they think is worth reading, but it's always different. Oh, okay. And the universal, um, consensus is that the sequels after Dune are just not as good. So you right. can read Dune and stop and it's very fulfilling. Okay. But, um, but I, but I, uh, yeah, I, I Sorry think if I sidetracked you there. <laughs> no, 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 you're good because, because this is what I want to say. Like we hit in our X-Files episode, we talked a lot about living your own weird Yep. and like, just like really being yourself. And, and I've had people talk about that as like, Oh, you found your calling. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that language. Mm-hmm. Even, even the skeptical part of me is very comfortable with that language. the, the sort of mystical, uh, you know, God loving part of me also comfortable uh-huh. with that language when it's nuanced. Right? right. Um, and so again, our whole live your own weird episode was about that. And at the same time, you and I both have had to heavily deconstruct the ways that this sense of obligation, uh, gets hacked yep. and abused mm-hmm. and things get fostered upon us that are not real. Right. Right. That are not authentic, that are not who we are, that, yeah. that gaslight us and try to control us. Um, and so, so living in the in between of those two things, I think is, is something I want to do. And I think the movie and the book does such a good job. Okay. Um, but then he starts having these prophetic visions, mm-hmm. which is wild because he's, maybe seeing the future. And this is what I, this is what I'm not totally sure about is like, supposedly the, I think it's the kids like Satirac. I forget what his title is, can see the future and he can see multiple futures. So here's where it gets interesting. If you notice, he keeps having these prophetic visions, but they're all different and they contradict each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. So suspending disbelief and stepping into the world of the film. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? Does it make the prophecies accurate or inaccurate? Does it mean he's hallucinating because he is seeing people that he hasn't met, but then when he meets those people, the events don't play out the way that he saw it. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Huh. That's interesting. Is it a, is it a, is it a what could be scenario? Is it a, that maybe he's, because he's seeing them, he's manipulating the future or the, or, or, or reality? I think it's, I think it's, a, yes. I think it's a few things. I think it is one, he sees the vision, but then once he sees the vision, he knows about it, which changes the way it's going to play out. Like what uh-huh. what the observer ob- affects what's observed and and, yep, and, yep. and vis-a-vis. I think it's that. I think maybe he's seeing multiple realities right. simultaneously. So he's seeing a different timeline where it would have played out this way. And then in this timeline, it plays out another way. So it's been yep. multiverse stuff. Um, and also, I think it really 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 accurately depicts when you look at a lot of sacred texts um and myths the world over and you look deeply at how prophecy plays out 
It's a very slippery beast. And I think this does a really good job of, is he seeing what's going to happen in the future? Or is he seeing what he needs to see to Mm. move him towards the future that he's, air quotes, supposed to move towards? Right. Um, And that's the thing of, you know, again, this is, this is the wild thing about prophecy, right? So even this idea that they, this is so true to life. They have all these prophecies. He knows that the prophecies have been engineered and yet they also seem like they might be real. Right. And that's like, if you look at, um, uh, you know, what we love, we grew up with these conversations where people were like, well, why do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And you're like, because there's so much prophecy in the old Testament that accuracy, accurately prophesied things. First of all, mm-hmm. a lot of it is not that accurate. A lot of it is metaphorical. Second of all, um, or like Old Testament, like in the book of Daniel, they predicted that Cyrus was going to come and do these things. And you're like, right. And most scholars believe that was just written after it happened. Right. That's how they accurately <laughs> predicted it. They wrote it after. Right. Um, so there's, and then, and then um, that sort of prophecy in the real world does live on that hinge of what's engineered, what's real. Right. Um, and yet there've been some pretty accurate predictions. Um of things uh-huh. by different figures throughout time. Mm-hmm. Is the, was it Nostradamus who was the one who predicted a lot of the, the future stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I, sort of, of, but then you yeah. read them backwards and you're yeah, like, did yeah, yeah, he yeah. predict it or did we just fill yeah. in the blanks the way that we want? Yeah. Um, who was the other guy? Edward, Edward Gacy, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was a, he was a, like a prophecy guy, right? Yeah. Like, prophecy is yeah. a slippery beast, man. If I had a dollar <laughs> for every time, you know, growing up again, Pentecostal, people would prophesy things about the end of the world. I've never heard people be more <laughs> wrong, more frequently, and it doesn't seem to phase anyone. Well, JFK um, Jr. was supposed to show up in Texas the other day. Yeah. Prophesied. Didn't happen, yeah. unfortunately. Didn't happen. Might happen. Um, <laughs> it's a slip. There's, there's a, you can cut this out. Uh, I always go <laughs> default to this. There's a story in the Old Testament. Uh, the old prophet, the young prophet and the lion. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this one? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is there's a young prophet and God comes to him and says, go over, leave Judah, go to the, the nation of Israel, prophesy against the king, tell him bad things are going to happen. But while you're there, do not eat or drink anything in his territory. That's a very significant sign. Do not eat or drink anything in his territory as a sign of protest, basically. So he goes he gives his prophecy. The king says, oh my God, you're right. I'm a bad person. I deserve what's coming here. Let me have a feast for you in your honor. Cause you're clearly a prophet. And he says, no, I've been told by God not to eat or drink anything while I'm in this territory. Then there's an old prophet and God says to the old prophet, go talk to the young prophet and bring him a meal. So the old prophet goes and intercepts the young prophet on his journey and says, Hey, I'm a prophet. I brought you some food. And he says, no, God told me not to eat or drink anything as long as I'm in this territory. And the Old prophet says, but I'm a prophet too, and God told me to tell you to eat or drink something. So here, here's some food. So the young prophet eats the food that the old prophet brings him. Then a lion shows up and straight up murders the young prophet. (laughs) And as it's happening, the old prophet says, you're going to die because you didn't listen to God. (laughs) So he tricked him. Yeah. Then the lion kills the guy, but doesn't eat him. Okay. And the old prophet turns to his assistant and says, put his body in my tomb. And when I die, bury me with him because he's a true prophet. And then you're, it's implied the reason the lion doesn't eat him is because he's a prophet. Okay. None of that makes sense. 
Yeah. You have you have God actually telling someone to trick someone else. Like it's it's a big old cluster fudge, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the but the moral of the story is that prophecy is a very, very slippery beast. Even accepting that prophecy is receiving oracles right. and and divine truth. It's very, very complicated. Yeah. Um, you know, even like in a simple example, if you look at the first Matrix movie when the Oracle tells Neo that he's not the one. Right. But then Morpheus is like, yeah, that's what you needed to hear to get you to the point right. that you could accept that you're the one. Yeah. Um, it's, I think of all the things in all the spiritual systems and all the myths that I've ever encountered, there's nothing more dangerous than attempting to foretell the future. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. And and I think Dune plays with that really well. Yeah. I think Dune plays with that really well. Yeah. And, and 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 poetically too. Like there's that scene where he has the vision of him becoming friends with this guy right. and then that guy like becomes a mentor to him, but when he actually encounters the guy, the guy challenges him to a fight to the death and he has to kill him and he doesn't want to kill him because in his vision he was his friend. Right. But you realize that in having to kill this guy, the guy is actually teaching him something. It's Right. Yeah. Very new. No, that's, but no, yeah, that's man, a, prophecy. That's a great Oof. scene, by the way. Yeah. It's an intense And I, I don't, I'm so defended against it. It's only that we're having this conversation that I realize it's not just calling. Like in my, in my youth, prophecy about the future was a big part of the weird sect of Christianity that I was in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh my God. And it's, and it's, it's driven politics. And, um, you know, you can, yeah. you, you sympathize with Paul not wanting to get involved in a holy war because holy war is a real thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think, I think let's use the word crusade and not the word jihad. Like this is something in Christian history that we've seen. Right. Mm-hmm. Is, is religion abused mm-hmm. to, to fight wars. Yeah. Uh, and I think in our lifetime, we've seen a lot of how Christianity gets hacked. Religion mm-hmm. gets hacked to support right. political movements. Yeah, totally. Yes. I would agree with that. Um, you know, the last thing this movie clearly does is, is holy war is a theme mm-hmm. and holy war is, it's unfortunately like one of the, one of the terrible realities of, of yep. religious life in the world. Now I, I told you, I, I love this story. Um, I was hanging out with a, a buddy of mine and his friend and they were both engineers and they, and I told him I had just, you know, finished my, my, whatever my doctoral studies and comparative religion is a big part of it. And he's like, oh, I don't believe in religion because every war that's ever been fought in the history of humanity has been fought in the name of religion. One, not true. Right. Two, um, yes, religion has probably played some kind of role. Yep. And three, 100%, like holy war is a real thing and horrible mm-hmm. atrocities have been on in, the, in the name of religion. But mm-hmm. what I said back to him was, you know, he's like, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in religion. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, that's funny because like, I uh, don't believe in science because every war that's ever been fought in the history of humanity has been fought using the tools of science. Right also true right right it's it's um and that's not to say science is bad it's to say like there's nary a human institution that exists that can't be abused and used for bad or co-opted yeah right case in point christianity when it started was a religion of peace jesus (laughs) very much pacifist maybe a communist depending on how you choose to read him um and then and then you know constantine uh, legalizes Christianity. Eventually, it becomes the religion of the empire. Then uh, you have emperors like Justinian who who start interfering in church councils to make theology what they want it to be. Um, 
and, uh, and, and burning books and forging policies. And slowly this religion of peace, uh, is, is co-opted in some expressions by empire. And I think, I wonder if the danger of that is the reason that there are so many war metaphors, but also you have, you know, in the old Testament, like God is telling people to straight up murk people. Right. Uh, there's, there's genocide that takes place. Um, one of my favorite texts of all time from outside of Christianity is the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. which is starts and ends with a, a general who does not want to fight a battle yeah. because he will see friends and family members on both sides that he cares about killed. And he's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do this. And then Krishna shows up and is like, it's your karma. It's your destiny. You have to do it. Yeah. Um, now, students of the Gita will tell you it's a metaphor mm-hmm. because the real war is against the ego, right? Right, right. Yep. Um, you have Paul who eventually gets to the point that he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, weakness, mm-hmm. spiritual forces in high places. And then people who say, well, that's a metaphor for right. systemic injustice. But, um, you know, this is a real thing. Yeah. That the image of warfare permeates a lot of our sacred texts. And we talked about this in the Starship Troopers episode. I would argue it's descriptive, not prescriptive imagery. Right. Because it's texts that were being generated at a time where where perpetual war was a reality. Yeah. Um, but it's not something that we can easily sidestep when we talk about religion. Totally. And I was going to say the thing that sort of the way I look at that, because I, I would – in, in in regards to sort of the comment that your friend made about I don't believe in religion because all wars. Yeah. You could you could even if you're siding with him, you could even say like all wars can sometimes be justified by religion, yeah. right? Like in even yeah. in our culture, especially in what we grew up in, there was a lot of like, oh well we're gonna kick the crap out of these people because that's what God wants us to do, right? There's yeah. not not to say that we went to war because of some religious ideology, but you can use religion to um, justify the the ends, you know, um, and I think in my mind it's all just the human condition. One hundred percent. Religion is the human condition. Yep. War is the human condition. Yeah. Uh, you know, like betrayal, like all these things are just the the way we exist, and it's not necessarily because of one particular thing. I, I would argue that most war is m- really about tribe right it's more yeah, about that 100%. than anything whether it's political geopolitical um land you know um and yeah religion is there because we are human you know i agree and, and obviously you're uh i, I am more probably much more than you a believer that there's a metaphysical reality on the other side of it mm-hmm. but i think that um i think what we need and agreeing with what you just said I think that also helps us read our sacred texts differently. We've talked on this podcast about how I talk about the flood story yep. and you read the flood story at one level and it's God punishing sinners yep. and saving a tiny remnant. You read the flood story in the other and it's a cautionary tale about why God doesn't do that. Right. Because God murders everyone on the planet in the story, which I think is a myth, not something right. that actually yep. happened <laughs> and, um, and intentionally done. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of a parable. God murders everyone on the planet and then at the end, 
the survivors are traumatized. So yep. Noah invents wine to get drunk because he has so much PTSD from just surviving a genocide. And even God says, oof, that was a bad idea. I'm never going to do that again. And yeah. throws the rainbow as a promise that it'll never happen again. And yeah. that story's there so that when people go, why doesn't God just punish all the bad people? It's like, because that's what it would look like. Right, right, and we yeah. don't like that. Yeah. And then you have like my, my great mystic origin who said, you know, when you read stories about um, uh, God telling people to fight wars in the Old Testament, God speaks to people at the level, the divine speaks to people at the level that they're able to hear it. And yeah. he's like, at that point, that's what they were able to hear was a story that sounded like that. And the intention of that story is to get us to outgrow it. Mm. When we look at those stories where God says, go kill all the Philistines. And we go, that's horrible. That's doing its job. Right. Because it's yeah. getting us to evolve beyond it. We go, nope, not okay. Yeah. Um, and, there, and then you start to read stories differently. Like there's this great story where uh, Abraham is having a conversation with God and God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And I know I've talked about this in this podcast, so I'm not going to go through it again. And they start bargaining. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and Abraham says, will you spare the city if there's 50 good people? Yep. Well, what if there's 40? Well, what if there's 30? And he gets all the way down to like 10 and then he stops. And there's not enough good people for the city to be spared. And when you read that story, you're like, wow, those people were so evil. But what you're supposed to go is go, God, Abraham, why didn't you just say, will you spare the people from me? Right. That's what it's trying to get you to. It's, it's yeah. always, everything in the Hebrew Bible is trying to get you to universal salvation um, and, and, and the love of all people. But it's giving you these shocking images to say like, this is what war looks like. There's another story where Saul is sent out to fight a battle and he's told, kill everyone, women, children, everything. And he does, but he spares the women or he spares the sheep. He keeps the sheep for himself and the livestock. And Samuel shows up and he says, did you do everything God told you to do? And he goes, yeah, I killed everyone. Um, and he goes, well, what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep? Like you listen to God, but you kept the sheep and the livestock for yourself. And when you, real, when you read that, there's one level you go, well, Saul should have just killed the animals too. Or there's another level where it's like, dude, he saved the sheep. <laughs> you you killed the women and the children, right. but you saved the sheep? What the hell the fuck is wrong with you? Right. And that's that kind of, it changes the way you read those stories over time. Yeah. Um, but we cannot acknowledge that they are fundamentally dangerous. Yeah. And religion um, is one of the single most precious and dangerous technologies and natural resources that we have mm. wow. as a human species. I will say this last thing and then shut up because we're so far over time. Yep. What all this says to many of my colleagues is that humanity is outgrowing religion. What it says to me, and this is what I like about stories like Dune where they're set off in the far future and religion still exists is, I think that religion as a human institution, just as humanity as a species is still in its infancy and we are still evolving into a place where we will begin at some point to experience actual mature religion and understand mm. what it is in its adult capacity and all the good it can actually accomplish. Interesting. But, um, but I think we're not there yet and it's a chaotic world. So maybe we'll, you know, destroy ourselves before we get there. But I, I yeah, do, I do. Probable. <laughs> I, yeah. But I do think, I do think um, religion is a profound human potential and the greatest gift we have from the divine still in its infancy frequently misunderstood and abused interesting huh talked a lot about a, a lot of shit in this oh yeah th this has been a weird wild ride i did not uh I'll, I'll be very frank i did not have high hopes for this episode 
Yeah. Well, not because I didn't like the movie, but because I was like, I, I, I was, I'd only seen the movie once. I, I didn't know where we were going to take it and how it was going to go, but that was fun. Yeah. And I, and I, I would love to end on the note of like, um, honestly, like I think religion is a good thing, but I think humans can corrupt anything. Mm -hmm. And so religion continually challenges us to outgrow it. But I think that's religion working, not religion being obsolete. Mm -hmm. Um, but I could totally see people saying, no, we need to outgrow it. We need to cast it aside. We need to move beyond it as fast as, as possible. Um, but then, but then we move to what, like secular philosophy or even like the beautiful things of mindfulness. I'm already seeing those things be co-opted and corrupted for you know the gain of other people it's just it's well, just we're humans it's what we do well and, I, and I, my my recent argument has been that <clears throat> you take a religion away and we just find some new religion to replace it with that yeah. we don't call it god i mean you can even look at something as simple as you know all these theories about how we're living in a simulation yeah what what is that theory the theory of the simulation is that there is some magical force bigger yeah. than us that is guiding everything we do. It sounds a lot like religion to me. Yeah. Not that you're wor- not that people are worshiping that, but the idea, the 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 archetype is there, right? Like, right? <laughs> yeah, and it, and it, and you know, Jung gets into this. Religion is a function of the psyche, and there is a, there is a religious function in the psyche, but religion is a function of the psyche. It's sort of what we do psychologically. Right. Yeah. And it's part of what we do to make meaning. And Jung, so when Jung says things like, of all my patients I counseled, counseled in the second half of life, none got better who didn't rediscover a religious sense of life. Mm. He's not talking about they started going back to church. Right. He's saying they, you know, they learned to get back into symbol and myth and meaning. Now, granted, end of the day, I do believe in God. Yep. I do believe in fate on some level. I am a mystic, but I also, you know, as you know, can can step into a skeptical place. Yeah. So, um. You know, no, I'd like to take it out to our three listeners. What do you think? Religion, yeah. make society better, make it worse. No, it's interesting. And that quote is is interesting too, because I do agree that, I think I talked about this on Eric's podcast, where I feel more in tune with what I think most spiritual people would call God. Yeah. I My problem lately is semantics. Yeah. I have a real hard time with the language that I'm comfortable using. And yep. also the... Um, how can I word this? The, sort of the legitimacy of the metaphor versus reality. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And so like, for me, I'm living in a place right now where I feel connected to something bigger, but not yeah. in the way that I used to and not yep. in the, like, there's a physical thing, just yeah. closer to life being, you know what yeah. I mean? And semantics have become a very tricky place for me lately um, of like how yeah. to articulate what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I'm and not now saying you I believe out. in God, you know yeah. what I mean? That's, but I think that's some people- That's my goal and agenda for the podcast. Well, I was going to say, I think some people would say that I, what I'm saying is that I believe in God and that's not what I'm saying. You know what I'm um, saying? I don't have time to do anything more than I'm doing right now. I'm so slammed by life right now, uh-huh. but there's a book I thought it would be fun for you and I to read together while we did this podcast. Okay. And it's called religious, but not religious okay. instead of spiritual, but not religious, yep, religious, yep. but not religious living a symbolic life. Okay. And it's Let's written it. by a Jungian analyst. And he's basically talking about like sort of my thing of like living in the as if, or like recognizing that, that, healthy religion can be good for the soul, but you don't actually have to be a believer to participate. Right. Um, yeah. And so, uh, 
you know, or even I've heard, I've had um, Jewish friends say this where they're like, well, I do the practice. I don't believe in it, but the practice believes for me, but it's not even that it's more like understanding the psychic function of it. So it's called uh, religious, but not religious by Jason E. Smith. I'll send you the link when we're offline. Or or is this? No, I want to. It's like, I I found it doing some research and I was like, this looks like a lot of fun. Um, so I'll send you the link and you can look at the table contents and see if it's something you want to read. And maybe one of our two listeners wants to read it with us, but dude, Dune, uh, definitely a conversation that felt like (laughs) slow and atmospheric, like the movie, but, uh, (laughs) lots to unpack there. Also last thing, Hey, it's a story about a mom and her son. You never really see Uh, that anymore. Yeah. Great. That's yep. Might be my favorite part of the, the imagery in the movie there. It's (laughs) very beautiful. Yeah. Yep. I love it. I love it. I love it. This is a fun one, man. Um, to our listeners, thanks if you made it this far. Uh, hopefully, I can get this cut down to a listenable length. <laughs> yeah, whatever you've heard, Ryan has done a heroic effort to yeah, edit it. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for listening. As always, if you would do us the honor and go to your preferred listening platform and give us uh, ratings, reviews if they allow it, um, it apparently helps us out uh we just found out this week we're rated number 197 on the movie review list oh, on itunes or apple podcast I, I, wow i don't really know what there's, to say about that there's only 196 podcasts better than ours mike that's, in that genre that's really really good to know uh well we always said this was just something fun for you and i to have good conversations and we didn't care if anybody listened so i'm excited about we're fulfilling that fulfilling that goal um mike. Yeah, and I just I just want to thank everyone for listening to our spiritual podcast. This has been another episode of Cinemartyr. Movies to sit, die for. We're just going to sit now for the next 5 minutes. Let's have a contemplative moment. <laughs> That's as long as I can let that go. One last thing, go to uh Cinemartyr Pod on Instagram, follow us there, talk to us, give us suggestions. Um uh, that's the way you can interact with us. Um, right on. All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. All right. Be good, y'all. Catch you next time.